Hello there, I'm Kiosa Ronin Beemaker, and welcome to Lounge Ronin, all things, everything. To learn more about myself and how you can support Lounge Ronin, head over to my Patreon page at Ronin Art and Music. If you're interested in reaching out, follow me on social media, on Twitter, Ronin Art and Music, or at me at Kios Ronin, K-O-I-O-S-R-O-N-I-N. On Instagram, follow me at roninart underscore music. And if you prefer, hit me up at my email at roninartandmusic09 at gmail.com. And if you're listening to this on your preferred streaming service, please make sure to subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, leave a comment and a review, and slap that notification bell. On Apple Podcasts, Please make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review as this will help me and the podcast grow. Stay positive, stay focused, stay true, and much love. Beatmaker. And welcome to Lounge Ronin. All things, everything. And before we get into it, if you're new to the channel, make sure to subscribe and ring that notification bell. And please, Leave a comment with your thoughts below. And make sure to hit that like button. As that will help the channel grow. And on this episode, we're going to discuss ancient Hindu texts and quantum physics. Now, I do remember back in the day when I was the heyday of being able to do long division. So do not expect any mathematical advice or expertise from me. But I found this to be a very interesting topic and it made me really think about you know how much knowledge is you know this is not necessarily discovered but just rediscovered and uh you know when we look at ancient history when we look at ancient civilizations you know the other day we talked about you know the denisovans and how, you know, about 40,000 years ago, they were making, you know, very, you know, pristine, you know, geometrically incredible um, jewelry. Uh, so we kind of have to ask ourselves, well, you know, what type of, you know, obviously you would need very, you would need to have very skilled math and 
and and and you would need to be very disciplined in forms of math, especially if you don't have you know measuring tapes and measuring rulers nowadays, as they probably didn't have to create you know beautiful jewelry. You have to really kind of think about it, like, well, who taught them the the mathematical skills that would be required in order to create um, the tools to create such beautiful jewelry. And uh, that's just something that, you know, that kind of popped into my head um, as I was reflecting upon today's live stream. Uh, because, you know, when you look at the Denisovans, you know, they looked like, you know, you know, they, you know, they, they look kind of like more like cavemen. I, you know, that's the only way I can make it to articulate it so you guys can have a visual repre representation as to what I'm talking about. But what I'm trying to infer here is that when we look at these, you know, these articles and they talk about these, you know, Hindu texts, you know, this is during a, a much more advanced and, you know, quote unquote, civilized era. That's how you want to put it. Um, so it just kind of makes me, uh, think about what these kind of implications mean as we learn more and more about, um, the past and more and more about these pre, you know, pre-sapien, uh, species of man and how, you know, we're learning more and more how technologically advanced they clearly are. And I think for anyone out there, you know, just, you know, in regards to this conversation, what we're talking about is, you know, to, to keep an open mind uh, and just think about and just kind of reflect on what, you know, what we're learning. And if you've watched yesterday's live stream, if you didn't, no worries, you know, check it out after this one. But just, you know, think about those kind of uh, questions when we go through these uh, these articles and, and learn about, you know, India and its, you know, connection to quantum physics is, you know, how much of this knowledge is knowledge that's already been known and it's not being discovered, it's just being rediscovered and and no different than you know, many forms of lost technology that we are still using today. You know, you know, the Romans created aqueducts. You know, we have aqueducts as well. They're just not in the same design and structure that, you know, the Romans designed. So, you know, things like that. Um, you know, we can't, we, do, we, we have not reached, it, which is kind of ironic, the technological capabilities to replicate many of these megalithic stone stone structures we're not there yet which is ironic but back but we would then look at those people who are capable as not being as advanced because they didn't have shoes and iPhones I, you know it, it it's weird the 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 way the narrative the the mainstream narrative about our ancient history is being told to us cuz it's like at one hand they're extremely intelligent, and then on the other hand, um, they're not extremely intelligent. It, it's it's weird. It's it's very confounding, and I and I know a lot of that is 
is purposeful. But that's just something that kind of pops into my head and I thought I'd share before we get into it. Um, you know, enough of the Ronin rant. But, you know, just something that was curious in my mind. Uh, without further ado, let's get into it. This article was written and updated July 6, 2020 by Pierluigi Tombetti. Interesting name. Now, I will apologize in advance if I screw up any pronunciations. Uh, so I, I apologize in advance, but here we go. Quote, in 1929, Heisenberg spent some time in India. He began to see that the recognition of relativ relativity and interconnectedness and impermanence as fundamental aspects of physical reality which had been so difficult for himself and his fellow physicists, was the very basis of the Indian spiritual traditions. End quote. That was by uh, Friedrich Kappa, Uncommon Wisdom, Flamingo, 1989. I might have to look that book up. The ancient Hindu text known as the Vedas possesses elements common to both quantum physics and the concept of synchronicity. Why? Ancient Hindu texts teaching quantum physics, the Veda and the unpanished. Quote, the access to the Vedas is the greatest privilege this century may claim over all previous centuries. End quote. Robert Oppenheimer. Hmm. Very fitting for the movie that has recently come out. The Vedas are a collection of Hindu texts gathered in four fundamental collections. Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atrava Veda which preserve the millenary religious wisdom of the Aryans, a population settled in northwestern India around the 20th century BC. The oldest part of the Ravida Samhita dates back to an age between 1500 and 1200 BC. These are hymns, poems, mantras, and mythological tales written in Vedic Sanskrit, despite being counted among the oldest texts of mankind. These present extremely interesting concepts for physicists and mathematicians. Now, we're going to do a quick dive into the Vedas, but I do, I will let you guys know that I will be doing a live stream on the origins of the Aryan race. Uh, I'm not going to tell you when, uh, just take a view 
you'll just you'll see the notification and and you'll you'll see the thumbnail. But you know, I think what's very fitting, and I don't I haven't seen Oppenheimer, so I don't know if in Oppenheimer, um, they cover or discuss any of his um, studies on. Uh, Hindu text. I would be very curious if they did. Um, I I would not be surprised if they didn't. But you know, in my mind, I would figure that um, Christopher Nolan would be aware of that. But you know, I don't know if maybe that type of um, rhetoric and information might be a little too taboo for American audiences. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just, uh, I'm just wondering here, like, um, what, why would, why would, and I'm, I'm honestly, I, I, I would speculate that they probably, I've seen several reviews and people talk about it. It seems like they don't talk about him studying the Vedas in relation to guiding him towards creating uh, the atom bomb, which I I think is kind of funny and not surprising because you know this is this is typical of history. You know, we're you know we're not gonna you know let people know that it was you know a bunch of Hindu texts that inspired a white man to create an atom bomb. Uh, you know, it's no different than me recently learning that you know. Uh, Hippocrates went and studied at the temple of Ahimhotep in Egypt. And you could fundamentally just say that the basis for modern medicine uh, came from Egypt and started from Africans. But, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. And uh, I'm not here to uh, trigger anybody with that. But the... The essence of what I'm trying to get at is that it's very telling to me that um, the more we study um, history, the more that we realize, um, and we we are being we're being lied to, uh, manipulated, and. Excuse me. And forced to undergo this strange trauma. And it's just sad. It's sad to see. But let's learn some more about the Vedas because I feel that as we learn more about the Vedas, we will... um, get a better understanding of the spiritual connection to quantum physics. And I, and, you know, and I, and I would say, you know, it's no surprise. I guess we could argue that they're one in the same. <laughs> All right. This was updated August 22nd, 2019. The Hindu Vedas charms Myths and formulas for enlightenment. The Vedas are the sacred scriptures of Hinduism 
and are regarded as the oldest religious texts in the world, thought to have been composed at least 3,500 years ago. The Vedas are a collection of hymns, magical incantations, dramatic myth mythological accounts, and sacred formulas for enlightenment. There are four Vedas, the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yajar Vega, Veda, and the Atharva Veda, each of which may be further subdivided into four parts, the Samhitas, the Brahmas, the Iriyakas, theology, and Unpanishads, philosophies. So Samatras, hymns, the Brahmins, rituals, the Enakas, theology, and the Upanishads, philosophies. Okay. Very interesting. Who wrote the Vedas? What are they about? While it's not entirely clear who wrote the Vedas, it is actually a non-question, as the focus has been traditionally placed on the message rather than on the messenger. Some believe that the Vedas were given directly to the sages from God and then passed down by word of mouth until it was finally codified and written down several hundred years later. Others, on the other hand, believe that the Vedas were revealed by the sages themselves. So here we have a photo um, that shows the Vedas being taught. Some believe the Vedas were passed to sages by gods, while others believe the messages came from the sages themselves. So the photo we have uh, sages who look to be teaching their disciples. Generally speaking, the Vedas are composed of Hindu spiritual knowledge that can be applied to all aspects of life. The word Veda itself means wisdom, knowledge, or vision, and the social, legal, and religious customs laid out in the ancient texts continue to have an influence on the lives of Hindu believers today. However, the Vedas themselves are not commonly read even by devout followers of the religion today. The Upanishad, the yeah, the Upanishad, the Upanishad, okay, the Upanishads, okay, there we go. <laughs> the the Upanishads on the other hand are more popular and are often read by theology students around the world. And those are the philosophies. Rig Veda, knowledge of the hymns of praise. The oldest of the four Vedas is the Rig Veda, which means knowledge of the hymns of praise. It is also regarded as the most important Veda, and has contributed greatly to other three sets of texts. The Rig Veda consists of 1,028 hymns divided into 10 books called uh, mandalas, 
and is used for uh, recitation. The Rig Veda is an important source of Vedic history and many significant hymns, such as the Purusha Sutta, which gives a description of the spiritual unity of the universe, and the Nasidya Sutta, which is also known as the Hymn of Creation. And here we have a picture of Rig Veda manuscript in Devagandri in the early 19th century. Samaveda, knowledge of the melodies. Samaveda is used for chanting and is composed almost entirely of Vedas, of verses from the Rig Veda. The fundamental difference between these two Vedas is that the verses from the Rig Veda are arranged in, in, a, in a different way in the same in the Samaveda, so as to facilitate its purpose of being chanted at the Vedic sacrifices. Yajur Veda, knowledge of sacrificial formulas. Yajur Veda means knowledge of sacrificial formulas and contains exemplatory prose commentaries on the way religious rites and sacrifices are to be performed. In other words, it functions as a liturgical handbook up for priests. This Veda is divided into two parts, the white Ujjuri Veda and the black Ujjur Veda. This Veda has been compared in function to the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, which I think is very interesting. Um, the reason why I say that is because uh, it, it just kind of makes you wonder, um, and, and uh, it, it just, it's just very interesting. Excuse me for a moment. You know, we have the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Now we have the Hindu Book of the Dead. You know, I'm curious if there are other, you know, uh, cultures out there that have their own version of the Book of the Dead. You know, what about in North mythology up, up in New Europe? Is there one in South America? And, you know, I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, for me, it kind of makes me wonder how deep into the Vedas did Oppenheimer go? You know, did he practice any forms of rituals to uh, tap into the universe to gain his knowledge, you know, very similar to like tapping into the Akashic records, uh, you know, with, with very similar to Edgar Casey. And uh, there are many other individuals out there. I was listening to an interview with on Sam Tripley's tinfoil hat. I forgot the woman's name. I apologize. But, you know, she was discussing uh, her experiences with being able to tap into the Akashic records. And I wonder if there is a possibility that um, Oppenheimer himself may have tapped into the Akashic records to gain his own knowledge. Just something to think about. 
And here we have a photo of what looks like a married couple performing a marriage ritual. And uh, the Yajar Vedas sets out how religious rites and ceremonies are performed. The Athra Veda, knowledge of the magic formulas. The last and youngest of the four Vedas is the Athra, the Athra Veda which means knowledge of magic formulas. This Veda is named after a group of priests and is quite different from the three preceding groups of texts. The Athra Veda is more uh, folkloristic in style and consists of charms, spells, and magical incantations. Now, we did a, a live stream talking about, um, well, yeah, I did one a minute ago about ancient Mesopotamian magic and ancient Mesopotamian texts that had uh, incantations and even an exor exorcism spell. Uh, so I highly recommend you check that out after this live stream if you're interested in that kind of uh, information and history and knowledge. These include spells aimed at attracting lovers, causing or preventing harm, protecting against diseases and death. Book one, for example, has several charms against fever, a few charms against poison, and charms against worms for oneself and for one's cattle, for one's children. There are also charms that were meant to combat spiritual rather than physical illness. These include charms against possession by demons of disease and charms for driving away demons. Interesting, uh, demons of disease. I kind of. Sorry, we got a uh, we got Fast and the Furious going on, by outside right now. Uh, but I think you know what I was saying is the whole uh, possessions uh, by demon uh, demons of disease. It kind of reminds me of uh, to of uh, Warhammer Forty K. Shout out to uh, my Warhammer lovers out there. Um, in Warhammer 40k, you have the gods of chaos, and one of them is called Nurgil, and Nurgil is a god of disease. Uh, he's a demon, demon god of disease. So I just, you know, I'm, I think it's interesting that they're calling it demons of disease. And, you know, you have in this, uh, this space fantasy world. Uh, you have uh, a god of disease, you know, which is very similar to, you know, the the um, uh, the four horsemen and things of that nature. Uh, I just find it very fascinating when you kind of look at the similarities to our fictional stories and the similarity to our actual, you know, religious and historical texts. You can see the the inspiration and you know, a little bit of just kind of how I like to kind of put it is like, you know, disclosure through our um, entertainment, which is, you know, no surprise, but it's for me, I, I kind of look at the, the more obscure kind of entertainment out there that people don't really know that the modern people don't really get into. And, and you start really seeing some very, very interesting stuff, especially if you look into the, the lore of the video game series, Destiny, you see a lot of similarities to things that are going on in the world and stuff like that. Can't really say too much of it because I don't really want my YouTube channel to get in trouble. 
So yeah, but it's very interesting. The Veda is considered by some as not belonging to the Vedas at all, although it has not been noted with that regards to the study of Vedic history and science and uh, and uh, sociology. It is next in importance to the Rig Veda. Here we have a photo of uh, an image of the Codex Kash uh, Minarius Folia uh, 187 from the Athra Veda Simata. Gosh, I apologize, man. I, these are some tongue twisters here. But don't worry, make my, my tongue nice and strong for the next date. <laughs> if you catch my drift. Alrighty. The importance of the Vedas apart from religion. While the Vedas are best known as a source of spiritual knowledge, they are also significant for the material knowledge they contain. The Vedas are recognized as having made much contribution to modern knowledge and science. For example, in the field of mathematics, the concept of zero, infinity, as well as decimal systems system have been found in the Vedas. Moreover, some of the material knowledge from the Vedas has been confirmed by modern science. These include Vedic cosmology and the use of mantras to enhance the overall, overall well-being of the individual. Now, notice where it says mantras to enhance the overall well-being of an individual. You know, and and this is something that you know I thoroughly believe in, and and I and I've, I can uh, confirm from my own life is that, you know, what we say and what we speak, it does impact our physical and mental well-being. And you know, I have my own mantras that I say to myself every day and and during my prayers. And I see a difference in myself every time I, I say them, even if I have to repeat it multiple times to get it in there because I, I tend to be pretty, pretty stubborn. Uh, but the, the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, when you, it's just interesting whether you look at biblical hymns, whether it's Hindu hymns, right, whether it's Judaic, Judaic or even uh, is Islamic hymns, you know, uh, or in mantras, you know, you look at, um, for example, oh, wow, Rumi, who's a very famous uh, philosopher and poet uh, of Islam, you know, and he has some incredible phrases and mantras. Uh, one of my favorite that he has is be like melting snow, wash yourself of yourself. And I feel like when you can repeat things like that to yourself, especially in you know particular moments or incidents, you know there is a a uh, a spiritual release that I feel that many of us can kind of feel and gravitate towards, kind of a almost like a little bit of a minor reset to our system. You know whether you want to believe in. You know, this is a computer algorithm, whatever you want to believe in how this this plane of existence operates. 
when we have words and we have a belief system that supports and enhances our words, it makes our existence on this plane that much more navigatable, that much more pleasurable, that much more wiser, however you need it for that particular day, week, month, year. But what I'm trying to infer is that these are really important things to keep in mind, beliefs to learn from, because clearly it had some effect on Oppenheimer and he was able to create the atom bomb. You know, how much, how many other scientific, religious, social individuals were inspired by the Vedas that then led to further, further rediscoveries of ancient knowledge? I'm just saying, these are things that we that many people will take for granted whether it's because they it conflicts and i put it in quotation marks with their religious beliefs but you know the, the the it's kind of ironic when you start learning that you know uh that you know christ may have been the reincarnation of buddha since buddha predates christianity but I'm not here to tell you who's first, who came last, which religion is the best. My whole point is, is that we need to be more open-minded with our belief system and giving it better guidance and knowledge and wisdom and words that help to further our capabilities. And, you know, the reason why I keep bringing up Oppenheimer is because we know that he studied the Vedas. We know he studied these texts. What knowledge did he gain? And because of such knowledge, the aftermath costs, you know, whether or not you want to believe that it was atom bombs that killed. I'm not here for all of that. But what I'm talking about is it gave him the knowledge. And then what was the consequences of that knowledge? His entire life was turned completely upside down. And, you know, it's like, you know, was it him, you know, studying the Vedas or was it the fact that he was having so much sex with commies that it gave him the knowledge to defeat one of the greatest axes of evil of that era. I don't know. But listen, all I know is that sometimes Coochie can do incredible things to the mind. But I digress. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make here is that we as individuals, as humans, we can't take this knowledge for granted and we can't ignore how incredible and influential this knowledge is for our mental being and our capabilities of understanding the universe. Uh, and I think for anyone out there, if you are a religious person, if you are a spiritual person, agnostic, or you don't have any care for it, fine. But at least take time to at least study it and be aware of its importance. That way, when someone says something about it that you think it's nonsense or whatever, you can't be coming out of there talking out of your ass looking foolish. And there are a lot of people that love talking out of their ass, and it makes the entire room smell awful. And that's my point right there. Enough of a Ronin rant. Let's get back into it. All right. Now we just learned about the Vedas. And uh, here we have a picture of some of the collection of the Vedas of Hindu texts written in Sanskrit. Now let's continue. Traditionally, 
it is believed that the philosophical commentaries of the Vedas, the Upanishads, date back to a period between the 9th and 2nd centuries BC. Therefore, they are seen as subsequent additions to the main corpus. In the Upanishads, we find various concepts relevant to quantum physics, from cosmology to the idea of awareness of ultimate reality in time. These include A. Behind the stage of the world, there is a transcendent, infinite, dimensionalist reality that is limited and misunderstood by human senses, which can only give a very partial and misleading idea. B. Time is perceived by the senses in a linear and limited way. Consequently, there is a wrong conceptual image of it. Hindu, Buddhist texts, etc., meditative techniques serve to manifest the true awareness of reality, free from the illusionary cognitive chains of the human being. Let's discuss number A. Behind the stage of the world, there is a transcendent, infinite dimensionless reality that is limited and misunderstood by human senses, which can only give a very partial and misleading idea. Why do you wonder and ask yourself why, you know, Buddhist monks you know, work towards enlightenment so they can guide themselves through this transcendent, infinite dimensionless reality. You know, it's it's funny that we tend to feel and think as if this is it. When scientists down in Antarctica discovered a parallel universe of ours, except time goes backwards. Imagine living that lifestyle. But here in our uh, reality, we have people who practice and aim towards being able to navigate such a dimensionless reality to drink and philosophize and discuss the meaning of the world with the gods. To drink the nectar of the gods. And much of that in my mind is not something that is necessarily of substance to eat, but of life, of energy. And I I believe firmly that when we end on this world, you know, our spiritual journey continues, whether that is through reincarnation or means of another way. That remains to be seen. But I do believe that we as humans, we purposely and are and by design are limited in our beliefs of what it means to be human and what it means to live in this reality. You know, we, we, we tend to 
pretend as if we are the center of the universe. And I believe that we are capable of tapping into the center of the universe, but we are not the center of the universe. We are part of it, the source, God, whatever you want to call it. But to be able to walk in that reality, you have to be of a level of mind and spirit that many of us will never be able to attain. And beforehand, we, we were able to. You know, there was a time in our history of our reality where we were capable of using our brains to its full potential. There are reasons why we're not able to. Deals were made in order to allow us to maintain our capability of living on this earthly plane. And that is something that we all need to take into consideration. take that into consideration, then what are we doing here? What is the point? us, we walk this earth and we don't even know why. And I'm not here to tell you how to think or how to feel or what to believe. I'm just here to provide you with a bit of a challenge to your foundational beliefs. Because if we don't challenge our foundational beliefs, how are we supposed to evolve? How are we supposed to elevate and enlighten ourselves to be able to grasp and ingest these types of ideas? And how do we and, and be able to implement them into our own lives, into our own belief systems? You know, and, and, I, and I feel that much of that is, you know, we are being misled. You know, I, I constantly tell people, you know, don't. You don't want to meet your heroes because you may not like what you're going to see. You know, we, you know, if you want to believe in your heroes, you want to look up to them, fine. But you got to look up to the dark and the light. If, if you don't, then you are, you are being foolish and you're lying to yourself. You're obfuscating part of what it means to be human to only be placated by partial truths. And we live in a world of partial truths and misleading ideas. It's more prevalent now than ever. Look at what we are currently dealing with. Hell, they're looking at putting us through round, round two. <laughs> if you catch my drift, you know what I'm talking about. And further disconnecting us from our humanity, further disconnecting us from the source, from God, from 
religion. What do you think was the point of the last three years of the vacations to further disconnect us from our reality, from our humanity, to further the transhumanistic agenda? You can look into it. And I'm not talking about the LGBTQ. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about them disconnecting us from humanity and creating a hive mind that's indistinguishable from their agenda. And it prevents us from being able to transcend from being able to comprehend the infinite for a chance to navigate the dimensionless reality behind the world stage. That's why we live in a world of half-truths and misleading ideas. Because many people are believing in ideas that are going to lead them down the path of Self-embolation. And as those of us who live with with eyes unclouded by hate, as those of us who live in the essential reality, we watch as those burn within the false reality. I'm sure somewhere in the Vedas you'd find similar words of mine already been spoken. But the point remains is that even in these ancient texts, they're telling you the truth. But many don't seem to want to listen because they prefer the half-truths and the misleading ideas. And that's what it means to live in the false reality. The Vedas here are preaching the essential reality, the true reality. Many just can't seem to see it. A, I mean B, time is perceived by the senses in a linear and limited way. And consequently, there is a wrong conceptual image of it. As I like to say, manifestation is in synchronicity with time. And if you're enjoying your time with me thus far, please make sure to hit that like button as it would greatly be appreciated. (laughs) But what do I mean by manifestation is in synchronicity with time? Well, I mean that what we inspire for, what our belief system admires, it can determine the time in which our reality of our dreams become real. As I always say, the destination determines the journey. And for that, you must focus on what you can control amongst the chaos. And time, well, that's a tricky one. 
you know, as I sit here right now, sitting for 30 minutes, you can lose a day and a half of your life. But at the same time, I believe my words are important. And I believe that they're resonating with someone out there. So for me, that manifestation is that more people are inspired and listen to my words. And sure, maybe I might lose a day of my day and a half of my life. But hopefully I inspire someone to live a day and a half extra. Because there are many people out there right now in our current age and time that are struggling just to want to keep going. And time makes it hard to want to keep going when we're so caught up in it. But I'm trying myself to not get so caught up in time. To not always feel like I'm on the clock. Granted, this live stream was supposed to happen hours ago. <laughs> Actually, I should say weeks ago. But it's happening here and now. It's going well. I'm in good spirits. We got some people in the live stream. I know right now they're hitting that like button because of how much they're enjoying this stream. I'd say it all worked out. Because I kind of gave up on trying to get on time. And I was like, I'm going to do it at this time and make sure I'm there. And I was there. I wasn't on time, but I was here. And it's going well. And, you know, time is a weird thing. And I'll tell you about an experience I had that my mom can confirm. And she has had that, this exact same experience. And if anyone else has had this experience as well, please put a little clock in the comment section if you've also experienced this. So I was running late to work. I had a flat tire. Well, it wasn't flat, but it was it wasn't flat flat, but it was getting there. I had to fill it up, I had to fill up gas tank, and I had to go to two different gas stations because none of them had free air. Got the one that does. And I was looking at the time and I'm like, man, I am not going to make it to work. Because I had to be at work for three. And I'm all the way in the middle of town. And I'm like, it is 3.30. Ain't no way I'm going to make it. So I called work and I told them, hey, I am going to be late. And they're like, how far are you? And I was like, this is how far I am. All right, just, just uh, let us know when you get here. And I was like, alrighty. And so I pretty much was just like, all right. I was like, please, please get me there on time. I don't know what happened between the moment I left the gas station and when I arrived. But when I finally parked my car, I kind of just like, you could almost say like woke up because I was just like, wait, what, what just happened? And I looked at the time and it said, um, it was like, it said quarter to three. 
it's a quarter to three or three thirty. It was between three thirty and three forty-five. I can't remember specifically. And I got out of my car and I'm walking in, and uh, a coworker at the time, she looks at me and she's like, "How'd you get here so fast? We we were just on the phone." And I looked at her and I was like, "I, I don't know. I, I I have no idea. I didn't tell her that I don't remember because you know." That, be a little concerning, but I just told her, I have no idea. I just got here. Uh, so I, you know, I, I only bring up that story because of, you know, what does that mean in terms of time? Because, you know, I was on the phone with her around three twenty, And the next thing you know, I, I got to work between three thirty and three forty, And it literally, from where I was, it was going to literally take me a 30 minute drive to get there. Uh, you know, traffic was light. It was always light around that time, so it wasn't necessarily a concern. But, like, I only bring that up because it, clearly in that moment, my conception of, of time was altered. By who? I don't know. Was it me? I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that when I mentioned this to my mom, she was like, oh, yeah, that's happened to me twice. You know, I was like, oh, excuse me. And I asked her and she said the exact same thing happened that happened to me. I don't know what that necessarily means in terms of uh, our understanding of time or, or even our capabilities of tapping into time. I'm not I'm not saying that I'm a time traveler or anything like that. <laughs> All I'm saying is that... Uh, we really don't understand time. And, you know, you may think of my story and, and kind of roll your eyes and, and I'd be like, well, you have every right to roll your eyes at my story. Uh, it, it may sound unbelievable to you. That's okay. I am sure that there is someone out there who has a similar experience and can resonate with me. And if you can, make sure you hit that like button. I know we got some people in the live stream. Please hit that like button. It would be greatly appreciated. Rumble, hit that like button. I see you guys. YouTube, hit that like button. I see you. And I can see through time, apparently. <laughs> but I don't know if anyone's ever had a similar experience. All I'm saying is that for me personally, that made me kind of question, not necessarily reality, but my understanding of time, because I don't, I really, I don't remember after I got off the phone, all I remember, and I can just tell you, is leaving the gas station. That's the last thing I remember. And the, the next thing I remember after that is just parking my car and wondering where the hell was I? And I know that we've all had that kind of thing where we're driving and you kind of, kind of go into like autopilot you're not really thinking anything. You're just driving. I think we've all been there, but you're present, you know, but you're just kind of driving. You're in that kind of state of drive. Uh, but me, I, I felt like I just kind of took a step out of time and just got there. I, I don't know. It, the way I could describe it, the way it felt, honestly, this is just me reflecting on what it felt like. It almost felt like I was in you know, a, a, a pocket of that reality. Um, and it, it just felt like I was in this pocket 
That's the only way I can describe from what I experienced at that time was it felt like I was in a pocket. In this brief pocket, almost for a moment, it felt like. And then the next thing you know, I'm back. I'm in, I'm, I'm in present reality. I'm in present time. And it just felt like a pocket. And a pocket. And I don't know if maybe with being in this kind of pocket of time and space, it messes with your memories. I don't know. But even when I try to reflect on that time in that moment, it, all I can remember is just feeling in this pocket out. But I was in at the same time. That's the only way I could describe it. Honestly, if anyone else has been through something like that, please, you know, leave a comment. Let me know. Uh, but, you know, I it just made me think really, man, we really don't know what's going on with time. And even in my area, there's a guy at the college who's working on building a time machine. So, <laughs> you know, fancy that. So, uh, you know, it's just something to think about. You know, we, we really don't understand time, you know, and especially if, you know, it gets to the point where they're able to, whether it's, you know, do teleportation, whether teleporting, you know, uh, items from one place to another. And I'm not talking from one planet to another, but I mean, you know, from one continent to another, you know, that's another kind of funny, fickle thing with time. Uh, you have people out there who are actively trying to build time machines. You know, we have the whole idea that, you know, some of these, you know, UFOs or UAPs or entities are, you know, they're coming from the future. And, you know, the, the little gray aliens are us from the future. <laughs> uh, if, if that's an idea you want to entertain. I, I'm not really one for that one, but it's another one to put out there. Uh, this whole idea of of uh, even that um, that Japanese physicist I can't even remember his name, um, but he was on one of the Tonight shows and he even brought up the idea that we could even be visited by people in the future right now. Um, I, I don't know how much of that is necessarily true, plausible, or even possible. But it is something to kind of think about. Uh, there was like a famous photo uh, from like the 1970s and people claim it's like a, a time traveler. There's all sorts of stories and folklore and incidents with people who claim to be time travelers. And half the time it's either very elaborate hoaxes, other time very elaborate mockumentaries. And then there's a handful that people are just like, yeah, I don't uh, but even with the handfuls, there's you could probably um, discount them as well. But I think for all of us, you know, time is just a really it's a it's a fickle thing. I think we all battle with time, and and even people who get up bright and early, who are always there on time, or even a little bit early, you know, it's yeah, I commend you. I'm working on that. Uh, but even then, it's like you're just constantly battling time. Uh, and even when I was back home, you know, time is very different there. Uh, it's funny when you go to different continents, different areas of the world, you know, whether they live on a mono or po a poly time, 
it, you know, we live in a poly time here in the, in, in Western society and in other countries, they live in a mono time where it's just like, Hey, it is what it is. We get it done. We get it done. And when you're living in an environment where, you know, it's, you know, it's on their time. And as long as you are respectful and nice, it will get done on time. <laughs> you you start really seeing how time really affects our perception of reality and, and how we navigate uh, that reality and that that culture or climate. Uh, and I think you know those of us who've traveled outside the country, uh, or even in, within the country. I'm sure you go to different parts of uh, of the country. You're going to notice the way people treat time differently. Uh, but I think overall, we are all always constantly battling time because we correlate time with our longevity. We correlate um, time with how long we are on this planet. How long are we going to achieve our goals, achieve this, whatever it is, succeed in that. And we, we, we correlate time with that. And we're constantly battling time to create more time for ourselves. <laughs> If that makes sense, uh, but you know we, you know, it, it, you know, it's kind of like asking, you know, it would be fascinating to ask, you know, uh, a monk who has become enlightened, you know, uh, what what is how does he compare time in our plane to time in in that one? And yeah, we can say infinite and all those kind of words, but it's better to hear it from someone who's actually experienced it. And I'm sure that there are people present currently who are alive who have experienced that, and it would be fascinating to hear, you know, their experiences and and what they feel. I mean, you know, like I said, you can you know look it up online about you know scientists in Antarctica discovering you know parallel reality where time is going backwards. So I, you know, there in and of itself, it's like we really don't understand time because. If we have a parallel reality next to ours, which is essentially ours, but everything's going backwards in time, how are people in that reality navigating life? I think that's a, a really challenging and deep kind of question to ask yourself. I, I couldn't imagine. What does that mean? You're traveling backwards in time. What, what does that mean? And how does that, you know, affect our understanding of time? Because it's just, to me, it's just interesting. You know, it really is interesting to me. Uh, it, it just, it, it really um, boggles my mind as to, I don't know, it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Time is honestly, is a fascinating, it's a fickle thing. And I think for many of us out there, we spend too much time trying to control it, that we lose sight of living. C. Hindu, Buddhist, etc., meditative techniques serve to manifest the true awareness of reality, free from the illusion cognitive chains of the human being. Now, as I said earlier, you know, we have people that live in the false reality. And then we have individuals who live in the essential reality. 
And, you know, I came up with this concept of the essential reality from, you know, the teachings of the Toltec and and um, Buddhist teachings and and even reading some some books of Joseph Campbell's and the hero's journey. And then taking time into meditation. And, you know, I've, I am a very strong believer and advocate for meditation because I believe that, you know, even through for my own experiences, meditation has given me the ability to see and think more clearly and be more open with my own beliefs and interpretation and just knowledge. And it's a wonderful way to start the day, uh, to start the day with a clear and quiet mind. And when you are someone who practices meditation, you then kind of, you're able to, you know, break free from the chains, the hive mentality, as I like to put it, from the false reality. You know, and, and the false reality is, is a world of domestication, a, a world of resistance, you're domesticated into a particular belief system, into a particular way of living, oftentimes at the detriment of your own health, mentally and physically. You know, you see it going on right now, whether, you know, it's the, 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 the alphabet community, the, the, the Marxist community, you know, you, you see those people and none of them are happy, you know, it's miserable they're destroying their bodies with with uh, surgeries and chemicals, and it, you 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 see this, you know, and 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 even with me, I have you know a friend who I've been trying, begging to get to, to get her into meditation, because I know it would help her with her mental mental uh, health and help her clear away some of the, you know, the dangerous rhetoric and programming she has found herself spouting and believing. And, you know, that's the problem with, you know, with the false reality is that the false reality does not allow there to be an individual. It does not allow you to be truly human. But in the essential reality, in the true awareness of reality, you're able to navigate what it means to be human. You're, nav you're able to become the best version of yourself. You're able to digest the Vedas, you know, all sorts of knowledge, and you're able to digest it and take what works best for you and apply it to your life. You know, the, the, it's, it's clear that the Vedas are, are, are not only a, a teaching of, of health, but a teaching of, of the mind, a teaching of the body. You know, all of which are 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 you know crucial in our understanding and our capabilities, and you know you have to think about it to to reflect and to meditate on these hymns and these poems and this and this folklore to meditate and reflect on what does it mean for you? How does it guide you? How does it answer the questions that you're struggling with? And we will perceive individuals who 
speak with such a mentality as either being, you know, crazy or, or, you know, out of the box when sometimes they're the most sane out of all of us. You know, with meditation, there comes the, the ability to, to just understand what it means to be human. I feel as if meditation is something that whether that is just instrumental in our understanding of who, what it means to be us and what it means to be human. And when you, you can look into the eyes of people, you know, it's very telling when you look into the eyes of individuals, certain people, you can tell whether or not there's a soul, whether there's a presence, whether there's anything. And, you know, I, and even with people who, you know, I, who don't necessarily meditate, but they may have other forms of practices and ideas that allow them to be in a state of meditation. You know, yoga is another amazing form of meditation. Exercise is another amazing form of meditation. Gardening, hiking, being outside. Those are forms of meditation. And, and you may not necessarily be reflecting on a on an issue or a challenge, but you're being present. You're quieting the mind. And those are things that are healthy and strengthen your individuality, that strengthen your, your physicality, that strengthen your, uh, your biological systems. You know, meditation gives you the, the ability to do that. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to, I wasn't, was not capable of being able to speak and think like this if it wasn't for meditation. I started meditating first. And as I got better and more consistent with my meditation, it aided in my ability to start being more consistent and better with my workout routines, to be more consistent and better with other aspects of my life and other goals and avenues that I'm aiming towards. And, and that is something that's so beautiful about meditation is that it really, truly makes you a better person. And I think that's the whole point of the Vedas. And, you know, unfortunately for Oppenheimer, it made him a better person at the expense of, you know, hundreds and thousands of lives. And the uh, final bolt in the military, corporate, pharmaceutical, industrial complex. You know, if, if he knew that he was going to be getting duped into that, if he knew, you know, the ramifications of, of his creation, would he have, com would he have completed? I don't know. There were alternatives. I, I don't know. And the other alternative used bats. It's a fascinating idea, and it probably would have been, you know, probably would have killed even more people. But <laughs> regardless, uh, the, the, the whole point that I'm saying is here is that, you know, when you meditate on, on knowledge, on hymns, and it doesn't have to be in Hindu texts. It can be in biblical texts. It can be whatever. If you meditate on these things, it will make you a better person, even if that means having to sit in silence and repeat that phrase, repeat that quote. You know, these, these various forms of meditative practices, you know, they are instrumental in our, our capabilities of, of making us stronger people.
You know, we, we've, there are plenty of studies out there of group meditations, whether it's of, you know, 20 people to even, I think, one of, you know, a thousand. And such energy that was created from such a positive uh, meditative state, it decreased crime, it decreased blood pressure, it, it, uh, it created longevity. I was, you know, recently in this book, I've been reading The Awakened Ape. You know, they did a study where they just had these Japanese businessmen walk an hour through the park. And it actually strengthened their immune systems three months after doing that, um, that study. The, that's the power of being outside, the power of being in nature. You know, and, and imagine you do that, but you, you, you put your phone away. You turn it off. You put it on do not disturb. And you just walk in nature, down the, down the park. You just sit in nature. You don't have to think about anything. Just look at nature. And, and, and imagine the, 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 the elation that will, will come after the fact. And even in that in itself is a form of meditation. You're just being in nature. You're being in the moment. And that is what's so beautiful about meditation is that it teaches you how to live in the moment. To not be living in the past or trying to live in the future. It guides you to be here in the moment, in present time. And these... These teachings are thousands and thousands of years old. But the message still holds up. It's still good on paper. It's still capable of being practiced in reality. So why why are we going to deny such knowledge? Why are we going to deny such history, such capabilities? Is it because we're afraid? Is it because we're being controlled, manipulated? A little bit of everything. But I highly recommend anyone out there, take that time and, and do some meditation. Take that time and, and learn how to live in the moment, to be present. It's a beautiful thing. It'll make you stronger and more capable. But it takes time and discipline. And believing in yourself. And I know that sometimes is the hardest part. But like I say, the goal in life is to be the best version of yourself by being better than yesterday. The Vedas and contemporary physics. In fact, Ancient Indian culture and the philosophy of Hinduism are intimately linked to mathematical concepts, an aspect still seen today by the natural inclination of the peoples of the Indian continent for this matter. It is no coincidence that the concept of zero was developed in this very area of the earth and later spread by Muslims into the West. This has a close link with the search for deep reality. So before we get into it, let's learn a little bit of how Hinduism and India inspired math. 
This was updated September 26, 2017. Five ways ancient India changed the world with math. It should come as no surprise that the first recorded use of the number zero, recently discovered to be made as early as the third or fourth century, happened in India. Mathematics on the Indian subcontinent has a rich history going back over 3,000 years and thrived for centuries before a similar advancements, advances were made in Europe, with its influence meanwhile spreading to China and the Middle East. As well as given the concept of zero, Indian mathematicians made seminal contributions to the study of trigonometry, algebra, arithmetic, and negative numbers, among other areas. Perhaps the most significantly, the decimal system that we still employ worldwide today was first seen in India. The number system. As far back as... 1200 BC, mathematical knowledge was being written down as part of a large body of knowledge known as the Vedas. In these texts, numbers were commonly expressed as combinations of the power of powers of 10. For example, 365 might be expressed as three hundreds, six tens, and five units though each power of 10 was represented with a name rather than a set of symbols. It is reasonable to believe that this representation using the powers of 10 played a crucial role in the development of the decimal place value system in India. And here we have a picture of the Brahmi numerals. From the 3rd century BC, we also have written evidence of the Brahmi numerals, the precursors to modern Indian or Hindu Arabic numeral system that most of the world uses today. Once zero was introduced, almost all the mathematical mechanics would be in place to enable ancient Indians to study higher mathematics. The concept of zero. Zero itself has a much longer history. The recently dated first recorded zeros in what is known as the Bakshali manuscript was simply was simple placeholders, a tool to distinguish 100 from 10. Similar marks had already been seen in the Babylonian and Mayan cultures in the early centuries AD and arguably in Sumerian mathematics as early as 3000 to 2000 BC. But only in India did the placeholder symbol for nothing progress to become a number in its own right. The advent of the concept of zero allowed numbers to be written efficiently and reliably. In turn, this allowed for effective record keeping that meant important financial calculations could be checked retroactively ensuring the honest actions of all involved. Zero was a significant step on the route to democratization of mathematics. Carbon dating reveals Bakshali manuscript is centuries older than scholars believed. And here we have a picture of that manuscript. 
These accessible mechanical tools for working with mathematical concept in combination with a strong and open scholastic and scientific culture meant that by around 600 AD, all the ingredients were in place for an explosion of mathematical discoveries in India. In comparison, these sorts of tools were not popularized in, West, in the West until the early century, 13th century. Um, I don't even know what this last part is, but that's pretty much it for that. Okay. Solutions of quadric equations. In the seventh century, the first written evidence of the rulers of the rules for working with zero were formalized in the Brahma Sutra uh, Siddhanta. In this seminal text, the astronomer uh, Brahma Gupta introduced rules for solving quadric equations. So beloved of secondary school uh, mathematics students, and for the computing square roots. And here we have a picture of Brahma Gupta. Rules for negative numbers. Brahma Gupta also uh, demonstrated rules for working with negative numbers. He referred to positive numbers as fortunes and negative numbers as debts, as debts. He wrote down rules that have been interpreted by translators as a fortune subtracted from zero is a debt. And a debt subtracted from zero is a fortune. This later statement is the same as a rule we learn in school, that if you subtract a negative number, it is the same as adding a positive number. Brahma Gupta also knew that the product of the debt and the fortune is a debt. A positive number multiplied by a negative is a negative. For the large part, European mathematicians were reluctant to accept negative numbers as meaningful. Many took the view that negative numbers were absurd. They reasoned that numbers were developed for, for counting and questioning what you could count with negative numbers. Indian and Chinese mathematicians recognized early on that one answer, is, one answer to this question was debts. For example, in a primitive farming context, if one farmer owes another farmer seven cows, then effectively the first farmer has seven cows. If the first farmer goes out to buy some animals to repay his debt, he has to buy seven cows to give them to the second farmer in order to bring his cow tally back to zero. From then on, every cow he buys goes to his positive total. And here we have a picture of negative cows. <laughs> and of course they picked the brown ones. <laughs> Just a little race humor. Don't get your underwear in a bunch. Basis for calculus. This reluctance to adopt negative numbers and indeed zero held European mathematicians back for many years. Gottfried Wilhelm, Wilhelm Leibniz, I'm not even sure I got that last one part, uh, was one of the first Europeans to use zero and the negatives in a uh, systematic way in his development of calculus in the late 17th century. Calculus is used to measure rates of changes and is important in almost every branch, branch 
of science, notably underpinning many key discoveries in modern physics. And here we got a picture of uh, Wilhelm right, sporting a beautiful perm. He was beaten to it by 500 years. Yeah. Well, seems to be an ongoing theme in Europe at the moment. But I digress. Or Western society. But an Indian mathematician, uh, Bhaskara, had recently discovered many of um, Wilhelm's ideas over 500 years earlier. <laughs> uh, Bhaskara also made major contributions to algebra, arithmetic, geometry, and trigonometry. He provided many results, for example, on the solutions of certain uh, Diophantine equations that would not be rediscovered in Europe for centuries. The Kerala School of Astronomy and Mathematics, founded by Madhava of Sangramana in the 1300s, was responsible for many firsts in, mathemat in mathematics, including the use of mathematical induction and some early calculus-related results. Although no systemic rules for calculus were developed by the Kerala school, its proponents first conceived of many of the results that would later be repeated in Europe, including Taylor series expansions, infinitesimals, and differentiations. The leap made in India that transformed zero from a simple placeholder to a number in its own right indicates the mathematical enlightened culture that was flourishing on the subcontinent at a time when Europe was stuck in the Dark Ages. Although its reputation suffers from ethnocentric bias, exactly, the subcontinent was a strong mathematical heritage, which it continues into the 21st century by providing key players at the forefront of every branch of mathematics. And you see, that's that's the thing that's funny about it, right? Is why why are we I'm sure in in you know in, in top-tier colleges in terms of you know mathematical studies i don't know if they're t teaching their their students you know that calculus was already created by an indian guy 500 years earlier I, you know but but we want to say that wilhelm is the, the father of calculus when that's not true uh you know and that's that you know that's the whole thing when i talk about you know believing in the mainstream narrative the mainstream narrative is going to tell you that this guy right here is the father of calculus when in reality this guy inspired calculus so it's just you know these are things that we kind of have to take this is why i'm i'm so you know why i wanted to kind of touch on the impacts of indian math because i don't know how many people knew this i didn't know this i definitely did not know about how they influenced um negative numbers or even the fact that calculus was already a thing i didn't know that you know i was under the impression that calculus was created by a white man but now we're learning that is not the case you know and, and that's the whole point with me about not believing the mainstream narrative because oftentimes the mainstream narrative is going to tell you that it was all discovered by a white man and that is not the case and not to say that um there were incredible discoveries made by white individuals 
It's more of like, well, hold on, where did this in where did this discovery made by that that white individual originate from? Because then oftentimes we're gonna find out that it either came from 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 Africa or here from India. And you know, you you can you can argue with me on the merits of that. Uh, but, you know, you could go on Wikipedia and you can look up Herodotus and you will find out that he studied at the Temple of Amuhotep in Egypt. And it's on Wikipedia. And a lot of people love Wikipedia, so I guess it must be true, right? <laughs> uh, and that's the whole thing. That's why I think it's so funny that people are so quick to... Uh, um, are so quick to to just jump on the bandwagon and and say that this is truly it you know i was having this you know debate with with my with my with my aunt and you know you know telling her well you know slavery isn't the whole slave trade thing isn't really true and it's not necessarily being told in an accurate way and uh you know and she was like what are you talking about and how can you not believe it and you know and i you know was talking about the origins of the word racism and and where it originated from you know, with with uh, with Jefferson, and and she's like, oh, so you will believe? She was inadvertently calling me like I know someone in the live stream will will, will argue that she wasn't calling me a white supremacist, but she was. Um, and she was kind of saying, oh, well, you believe what the white man is telling you, and this and that. And I'm like, well, it's it's documented, and you can read the, the 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 court case. And you know, I didn't. In hindsight, I wish I had said this, but I'm like, you know, you're over here telling me. You know that you know I'm inadvertently a white supremacist for believing in a white person's you know documented information, but I'm like you're over here regurgitating the same talking points that the white man taught you about slavery. So I mean, who who really is who's here is uh, really believing the white man, and and that narrative because I'm over here, you know, repeating information that was taught to me by, uh, uh you know, whether uh, a, a black person or 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 an African person. <laughs> so you know I, so you tell me uh, and that's the whole thing that's so kind of funny about this is like even with this whole thing you know we're all learning uh for for everyone who's you know in the live stream and been enjoying thus far please hit that like button and uh leave a thumbs up if you've been enjoying it so far we're, we're all learning that you know india really is where modern math originated from and there's nothing wrong with that you know, but we know that um, the narrative, the mainstream narrative, the these Ivy League colleges, you know, they're not going to tell you that. You're not going to learn that in in middle school. You're not going to learn that in in high school. Your math teacher is not going to tell you, okay, we're going to learn a little bit about the history of calculus, and it actually, did you guys know, it actually originated in India 500 years prior to Wilhelm discovering it. You know, they're not going to tell you that. It would be great because then we can also then be, wow, I you know, being less ignorant and more appreciative of other cultures and their impacts on society. Because we're, we're going to let's be honest here. If it wasn't for India discovering calculus and creating math, clearly Europe would still be stuck in the Stone Ages, which is kind of ironic. You know, and if you, if you know what's going on right now with with Africa and and uh and France and Germany and those other countries, you understand how badly the 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 the, the, the white countries need the black countries. It, you know, I'm I'm not here trying to get into the whole racial politics, but 
it all it's just funny to me when we start learning the true history and the true origins of many things that we use daily or we either take for granted and you know i'm not saying that we all take math for granted we kind of we all need it it's it's in you know it's instrumental in our ability to to function but it's just funny to me that you're not going to hear anyone tell you any mainstream news or anything like that. You're not going to hear any, you know, white quantum physicists. You're definitely not going to hear Neil deGrasse Tyson tell you that that calculus and, and physics can contribute to, to India. He ain't going to tell you that. He's not going to tell you that. He's not going to tell you to get vaccinated. He'll, t- he'll, he'll tell you that, that, you know, male and female biology is just a bunch of zeros and numbers. But he won't tell you but he won't tell you that that math was is in astrology can and cosmology can contribute itself to India. And that's my whole point here is that, like, you know, we will have all these, you know, these crazy, cool mathematicians. I'm, I'm sure the Weinstein boys, they're not going to tell you that all their math and everything that they've learned and discovered is credited from India and, and probably is just being rediscovered and was already known. But that history and knowledge was was destroyed and, and erased. But, you know, my, the whole point that I'm trying to get at is that no matter, you know, the more you learn about the origins of our history, the true history, the more you start realizing that the narrative is really a lie and the narrative is used to dumb you down, to make you ignorant, to make you complacent. And complacent to what? To a negative mindset, to a negative, ignorant view of the world, to to knowledge that hurts you rather than aids in your improvement of your well-being. And and that's the whole point that I'm trying to make here when it comes to this whole the, the whole narrative of the bias. And it's like, yeah, you know, you know, no shit. <laughs> you know, as the more I learn, the more I realize it's like. I start, you know, pausing when I hear new information or like, oh, well, you know, did you know that this guy? I'm like, well, hold on. Who taught him that? Because we got to go back to who, where did he learn that information? Where was he inspired to create that math? And 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 now we're, you know, we're realizing whether or not Wilhelm was inspired by, you know, ancient tech, Hindu texts that he read. The, the, the whole point is, is that, you know, we have to give credit to the people who actually created the foundations for allowing a lot of these, you know, incredible mathematicians of the past and present to be able to succeed and create their equations and, and their theories and all that fun jazz. But like I said, you know, I don't know if you're going to hear the Weinstein say where the where the origins of math came from or the calculus. You're, you're, I don't know. I know you're definitely not going to hear it from from uh, the the, uh, the Grass Tyson, right? The only reason why you're not going to hear from that because he talks so much out his ass, you can barely breathe. But let's get back to the main article. Alrighty. So definitely... The mathematical notion of zero is very close to the idea of nothingness or emptiness. In the Vedas, the concept of ultimate reality is identified with the state of supreme awareness. In Brahma, 
uh, in awareness in the Brahma. Okay. Brahma is the innate, uh, emanate, transcendent, invisible, and eternal God who has no form. And in fact, the term Shunya means either zero, empty, or nothing. By identifying with it, the Brahma, uh, uh, Brahma, it, with identifying it with Brahma, it takes on both zero and infinite values. And here we have is a picture of the number 605 in Khmer numerals from the Sambor inscription. The earliest known material use the earliest known material use of zero as a decimal figure. Wow. That's incredible. Quote The multiplicity is only apparent. This is the doctrine of the Upani uh, the Upanishads and not of the Upanishads only. Uh, Erwin Strogender. There we go. Another uh, famous magician right there. Brahma and Atman. The Vedas support the concept of Brahman as an enormous field that constitutes the true reality of the universe and is not divided into objects with larger or smaller dimensions but remains what is at the basis of reality, namely reality itself, even though it manifests itself in each and every form and object of the visible universe. It is without dimensions and basically coincides with the concept of quantum non-locality. It is a concept of God very different from very different from that of other religions, especially those based on the Torah, the Quran, and the Bible. But in effect, it is not even far from it. In Brahman, there are, there are all the planes of existence, divine, human, and infinite others, that are superior and inferior to the human plane. These are considered illusionary. Nevertheless, they are experienced as real for the living beings that inhabit them. All existence and possible worlds and the universe are therefore a way in which Brahman manifests life, manifests itself. However, they are illusory in practical, unforeseen events that exist in Brahman, in power but become form and image when someone observes them. That's very similar to the the um, the experiment where they observe the uh, oh the um, was it the, the, the ion, the, the, the particle, the matter? There's an experiment, this quantum experiment, where you can, where um, this, the matter, right? I, I'm, I'm, if I'm butchering it, I'm wrong. I apologize. But essentially, it knows when it's being observed. Because it will behave differently when it's being observed and when it's not being observed. And I'm 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 wondering if uh, this philosophy coincides with that quantic experiment. <laughs> oh man, that's incredible! The, you know, it's 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 this is like uh, infinite regression when the observer becomes the observed.
Atman, which in Eastern philosophy can be assimilated into the individual concept of soul, identifies the subjective projection of deep reality. The Brahman, Atman, is a spiritual consciousness of the individual. However, it is nothing more than separate and an individual manifestation of Brahman itself, and to say they are ultimately the same thing. Which came first, the soul or the human? Both are defined as complementary states of awareness. While Atman manifests itself as an individual consciousness in a specific place and time and is eminent, localized, and locatable, Brahman is the transcendent state without time or size. If the Brahman, the supreme consciousness, is irretirable, shapeless, transcendent, and timeless, not localized, and not locatable, the only way to perceive it is to experience this cognitive awareness. Infinite Regression Here we have a picture, a soul passing from one person to another in reincarnation. You know, and then, you know, and that's why when I keep on bringing up, you know, infinite regression, it's like when the, you know, the observer becomes the observed, it's no, you know, it's similar to, you know, reincarnation where, you know, your soul, it goes from, you know, becoming the observer to the observed. You're living, you know, and, and, you know, and that's why when I said earlier, you know, the, your, you know, every journey, when you live, when you end on this plane, you're going on to the next spiritual journey. And that could be reincarnation and whether or not that's, you know, reincarnation of you having to learn a particular lesson or, you know, some kind of deal that's been made, you know, it really depends on your perception and your belief system. But, you know, it's, um, you know, if, you know, you look at people who are able to, you know, who have this ability to recall past lives, you know, is that them having a moment of, of being the observer, you know, and they are observing their past life. But then the same question could be the, the, you are observing that past life, but is that past life observing your current life? Or your future life. And you have this regression, this infinite regression that continues to go. Just, just something to think about. It can be said that the fundamental teaching of the Upanishads learned by uh, Schrodinger, 1887-1961, a Nobel Prize winning Austrian physicist, consists of becoming aware that there is no multiplicity, that the subdivisions into minor particles of matter is an illusion that is resolved in Brahman, and that the limited consciousness of Atman works complementary with the universal consciousness of Brahman. This implies the co-presence in every elementary particle of some degree of awareness, a condition known in Western philosophy as panthysism. Schrodinger summed up the illusionary nature of the multitude, multiple form as, quote, the polarity that we perceive is only an appearance. It is not real. Vendatic philosophy 
has thought to clarify it by a number of uh, analogs, analogies. One of the most attractive being the many-faceted crystal, which, while showing hundreds of little pictures of what is in reality a single existent object, does not really multiply that object. The multiplicity is only apparent. Now here we have a picture of the, the pluarity that we perceive is only an appearance, and here we have crystals for that except, uh, exa example. So let's learn more about the panpsychism. Let's learn more about this. All right, this was updated uh, March 6, 2019 by Jim Willis. Uh, Panphysism, the science and philosophy of an intelligent universe. Uh, move over survival of the fittest. Step aside gradual evolution through adaptability and random mutations. There is a new player on the scientific philosophical block. It is called panpsychism. And it threatens to challenge absolutely everything currently known about what the universe is and how it works. On the simplest level, panpsychism uh, pan makes the astounding claim that the universe, rather than being a sterile backdrop in which materialistic stuff evolves and develops, is instead a web of consciousness that brought about everything that is. The way of thinking is nothing new for those who follow metaphysics and some ancient religious systems. The idea of an Akashic field has been around for a millennia, but scientists operating within the parameters of mathematics and the scientific method to give such a theory and a name and subject it to peer-reviewed papers is a breakthrough. What uh, pantheism says is the universe itself may be self-aware. And if you heard me earlier, you know, I, you know, it's no different than whether you believe in, in God or you call it the source. Excuse me. I have to get a quick sip. Um, you know, there is merit to the idea that, you know, it, it's it's alive in some sense. And, you know, when I brought up my story about the experience I had with time, you know, that was me also kind of, you know, alluding and, and, and bringing up this whole idea of, you know, the, uni the universe being alive and, and whether the universe at that moment decided to, to, to throw me a bone and, and help a brother out, you know, that's, that's possible. Uh, but it would be really foolish and ignorant of us to not perceive that the universe, you know, that we live in, in some ways is alive. You know, I, I and also believe in many ways that the, that, you know, our planet, you know, whether you believe in a planet or not, I'm not getting into all that, but you know, that it in, in and of itself is alive. Now, there is an energy source within our planet that, you know, ancient civilizations were able to utilize and tap into, whether it's the, the ancients who built the pyramids or those who built go clearly an energy to this world 
that can be tapped into, no different than the energy that we as humans produce. Metaphysics meets science. Zen masters for thousands of years have said it all is one, have said that all is one. But to give this concept official sounding labels such as entanglement and proto-consciousness fields is quite shocking. It means that lines of inquiry which have traditionally moved along two separate roads called metaphysics and science may now have merged into one superhighway. Christoph Koch of the Allen Institute of Brain Science, a Seattle-based independent nonprofit medical research organization dedicated to accelerating the understanding of how the human brain works, has been designing experiments which, which define consciousness. His results indicate that biological organisms are conscious if they are capable of changing their behavior when confronted with new situations. But if a system is able to act upon its own state and, in effect, determine its own fate, it is conscious, even if it is not biological or organic. Now, there you start getting into the idea of AI. But what I find interesting here is that it says that uh, it's capable of changing their behavior when confronted with new situations. We have many organisms, whether they're insects, fish, you name it, that we may think are not necessarily conscious because of their limitations. But if they are self-aware of their environment and know when to escape, when to leave, when to mate, you know, those kind of things, they're conscious. And even if that consciousness is just running on default, there is still a, a level of consciousness there. I mean, I recently saw a video of a guy uh, waving to an octopus that came out of a, you know, one of those like aquarium where I guess it's capable for allowing octopuses to walk on, to walk on the surface as well. And he's waving to this octopus and the octopus waves back. Now, pretty crazy. And I'm sure some people out there have heard about the story of the, of the octopus that escaped its enclosure and literally escaped. It, it, it busted out. All right. <laughs> It got out and it was free. Um, you know, the the what, Finding Dory has a character that's inspired by that by that event. So you know, the reason why I was bringing that up is that it for um, you know octopuses are very very peculiar uh, animals. They are very suspect. I don't know if they're even from this this planet. <laughs> they might be from another planet or beyond the ice wall. <laughs> But, you know, what I'm saying here in, in relation to this is that, um, you know, we have animals out there. For example, pufferfish, uh, when they're when they are in mating, male pufferfish, you can look this up online. It's one of the most incredible things. They make these geometric nests to attract mates. And you have to ask yourself, where on earth are pufferfish able to create geometric mathematical shapes? It's it's incredible, you know. Take some time out of your day and and, and take a peek. I think what was it? Uh, I think Planet Blue. I I love nature documentaries, so you know if I if I bring up animals and things like that, it's because I, I I I spend most of my evenings watching nature documentaries. But the point that I'm saying here is that 
whether it's a pufferfish, male pufferfish creating these you know, geometrical nests, whether it's octopus and their ability to be so highly self-aware of their environment and it's and adapting to new situations and changes, uh, you know, it really adds to this whole idea that, you know, whether or not it was created by a god or created by an algorithm or a source, whatever it may be, or gods, you know, whatever your belief is, uh, you have to think about the fact that some of these animals, even if they are just running on default, but they are some, but they're still able to be self-aware of their environment to an extent, you know, whether that's, you know, intuition or just instinct, you know, there is a level of consciousness to it. Uh, and I think that just kind of further, you know, really makes me personally kind of like, I mean, I'm not going vegan or any of that bullshit. I, I, you know, I love me some lamb. <laughs> I bless my food before I ever consume it. But the point I'm saying is that, you know, we, we, we should start looking at different animals a little bit more with, I guess, a little more respect, even if they're the kind that just run on default. You know, I, I always have this, I always like to joke around with this idea that, you know, we have uh, animals out there. For example, uh, this type of squid, it only lives for a year. Or you look at uh, flies, they only live for like 48 hours. Or you look at uh, the mayfly that only lives for like 30 minutes just to mate and then die. Uh, you look at these these particular animals and these species, and I always look at and wonder in terms of relation to time, how do they perceive time? Because, you know, a fly that lives for only 48 hours, you know, for us, 48 hours can be like, damn, man, it's been 48 hours. It flew by. To a fly, that could be, you know, 30 years. That could be 50 years. Uh, and I just think that's just something, it just kind of popped into my head in terms of just, uh, animals and their conscious awareness but i wonder you know if we were to perceive life as a fly and and live in that time that time frame of 48 hours would we perceive that as being you know just two days lickety split or we perceive that as living a decade or two of an experience just something to think about all right Although he has yet to present his ideas in the form of a formal theory of mind, it is still a fascinating conjecture that has many theoretical physicists rereading traditional religious systems of thought and wondering if the ancients intuited what modern mathematicians have finally deduced. With more experimentation, uh, panpsychism might produce repeatable observations that could lead to fully developed scientific theories about the nature of a universe that intentionally produced mankind and might also help us understand man's unique place in the cosmos. Fascinating. Truly fascinating. Okay, here we go. Brahman, Atman, and wave function. 
It's now clear the reason why the Vedas were enormous interest to the Danish physicist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Niles Bohr, 1885 to 1962, and to German theoretical physicist Wormann Heisenberg, 1901 to 1976, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. In particular, the Vedic teachings finds an exact counterpart in wave function, which describes a particle in space in all its possible states, even in the past, present, and future. In other words, a particle has the potential to manifest itself in infinite states and power. Brahman coincides with wave function state of the, part of the particle, and Atman corresponds to the collapse of the wave function i.e. when the particle is measured, it will cease to be defined by the wave function to acquire one of the infinite possible states. There we go, our boy Oppenheimer, 1904 to 1967, one of the fathers of the atomic bomb, like Albert Einstein, 1879 to 1955, read and consulted the Bhagavad Gita, a synthesis of Hinduism's deepest thoughts with a scientific approach. Quote, when I read the Bhagavad Gita and reflect about how God created this universe, everything else seems so superfluous. I maintain that the cosmic religious feeling is the strongest and noblest motive of scientific research. Albert Einstein. You know, and I you know, and I would ask you all out there, you know, why does the Vatican have a cosmology department? Let you guys reflect on that. Here we have a photos of 19th century Sanskrit manuscripts of the Bhagavad Gita. The Vedas and the Unified Field. physics, matter and energy are considered the expression of four fundamental forces. Strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and gravity force. The classical model of physics conceives of a universe made up of energy and solid matter. The latter consists of atoms and subatomic parts, measurable and definable matter. It describes a world that corresponds to our everyday life, which is made up of blocks of matter separated in time and space and distinct from the human mind. The man, therefore, perceives what he sees and feels it as separate from himself. One of the achievements of quantum physics is the concept of the unified field, that is, the concept of a single field at the basis of fundamental forces, it is the initial source of everything visible in nature. However, it transcends existence. One could try to imagine it as a pure, self-sufficient field of information that has unusual characteristics encroaching on metaphysics, such as an infinite intelligence and diasm. Moreover, the classic model is replaced by a completely different version, in which matter is not considered solid, but simply a perturbed vibration, 
a sort of condensation in a large unified field. Um, I'm sure the flat earthers are singing right now. Warren Heisenberg introduced the uncertainty principle in 1927, according to which it is possible to perceive, precisely establish the position or the trajectory of a particle, but not both at the same time because a simple observation would produce a change. For example, if we wanted to use a microscope to observe the particle, we could magnify more and more, but in the end, to see it, we would have to illuminate it. That is, irradiate, irradiate it with a beam of photons, which possessing energy and impulse would end up giving the particle a different motion and different energy. In other words, when an observer attempts to measure or determine the position, he introduces a change. So an observer can never be passive. The person introduces an indeterminacy. Now, as I was talking about earlier, the Vedas kind of talk about that. In addition, particles can sometimes take on corpuscular form and sometimes wave-like form, which makes it impossible to describe mathematically and accurately the trajectory and position of a particle. It is only possible to describe it in terms of probability amplitudes, such as a curve or field indicating a statistical probability or position and motion. Ultimately, quantum physics reveals a world completely different from the Newtonian world, made up with energy fields coming from a single unified field. This introduces an enormous novelty in many sectors of human research, since every single living being is no longer a unique and different entity from the others, but turns out to be a focal point of intelligence within the same unified field. Moreover, this state illustrates the complete interconnection among individuals and between them and the universe. A reminder of uh, Giordano Bruno's teachings, this vision of reality constitutes a real revolution with an even wider scope than the Galilean and Copenhagen one because it enroaches upon the fields of morality, theology, and involves the personal sphere of thought of each individual. The Vedas, however, go one step further, teaching that the unified field from which everything is generated, including the physical laws of the universe, is pure intelligence, pure consciousness, and pure awareness. But totally awakened to itself is a pure singularity. In other words, the source, the source from which everything is materially generated is consciousness, or universal awareness. Quote, for a parallel to the lesson of atomic theory, we must turn to those kinds of epistemological problems with which already thinkers like the Buddha and Lao Tzu have confronted. When trying to harmonize our position as spectators and actors in the great drama of existence, Niles Bohr. And that, you know, coincides with what I said earlier about infinite regression and being being the observer while also being observed. Now here we have a photo of Confucius, Lao Tzu, and Buddhists are hot. I am totally going to make that my background on my phone. The concept of synchronicity, unus mudas, deja vu, and entanglement. 
Carl Gustav Jung, a pupil of Freud and a great expert in Eastern spirituality, recognized the existence of particular psychic phenomenon which he called significant coincidences. These took place, for example, when one was thinking of a friend far away. At that very moment, the friend called on the phone. Some of them were so circumstantial as to suggest a coincidence linked to a precise, not random meaning. For example, Jung was taking notes on one of his patient's dreams about a particular type of beetle, and that beetle came in through the window at that exact moment. The psychologist developed a theory that these events attract each other like magnets without any actual connection because they are connected to a deeper level of the normal reality of life. It is as if they were part of two distinct universes that came into contact at that moment. P. Tobetti discusses this in Synchronicity. Flight 9941. Amazon Publishing 2020. Jung deepened this theme from 1932 thanks to the father of quantum physics, Wolfgang Paul, Pali, who, who was his patient. The concept of synchronicity was born out of the meeting of these two extraordinary minds. And it, that's why, you know, it coincides with what I was saying that, you know, as I say, manifestation is in synchronicity with time. The theory is that two synchronic events do not fall within typical coincidences and which occur simultaneously are related to a deeper level. They fall within the type of behavior described by quantum physics, such as the entanglement. A particle can influence another instantaneously, even if very far from it. It is a phenomenon varied and tested by several laboratories. The events that fall within the significant coincidences are therefore connected and can be influenced and can influence one another, as the entanglement suggests. This allowed Jung and Pauli to begin to glimpse a pattern a sort of matrix in the chaos, as if it were the evidence of a design intrinsic to reality on several levels. It signals the existence of natural order, which connects every element of the universe. Pauli and Jung combined quantum physics with psychiatry and the concept of synchronicity. Sometimes curious events happen that are classified as mere coincidences, and sometimes the latter are so incredible that they can be part of those anomalous cases that Jung calls significant coincidences. Deja vu can be one of them. Just as physics recognizes the existence of many more dimensions and universes, uh, we, universes than we see, so Jung assumes that the events like the ones we're talking about take place when these universes come into contact. It's something behind our reality, like a stage behind the stage. And the man behind the curtain, who's behind the man behind the curtain. They called it Unis Mundus, and it had something to do with metaphysics. Jung was convinced that these coincidences, like deja vu or, or similar, were connected at a deeper level. A bit like frozen pinnacles emerging from the sea may appear as individual elements, but they actually are part of the same iceberg when you look deeper below the surface of the water. For example, he thought that mankind had created a huge common library where the oldest symbols resided, 
which he called archetypes, and the minds could be connected like everything in the universe is connected, i.e. the Akashic Records. I just added that in. Subsequent experiments confirm this vision of reality by defining it in the concept of entanglement or quantum correlation. Two subatomic particles initially interacting are placed at a great distance from each other and continue to be related. What happens to one is also observed in the other. This event has been experimentally confirmed by many scientific tests. The entanglement has very profound implications that go so far as to touch each of us, even in our most deeply rooted beliefs. This could explain, for example, how it is possible for those who believe for God to hear all of everyone's prayers simultaneous and instantly, we are all connected on an enormously deep level. Each of us acts as one and different at the same time. There is no more distance to cover. The Sensory Illusion I go into the Apanashads to ask questions. Niles Bohr Heisenberg Oppenheimer, who studied Sanskrit to be able to read the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas in the original language, Einstein, Jung, and Pali had somehow lifted the veil of illusion, acquiring intellectual awareness of the universe and the unified field. The reality we observe is nothing more than a great illusion that if understood perceived allows the realization that we are deeply interconnected to the same unified field or Brahman. Matter is not what we see and believe to be solid, but is formed by waves of energy. The consciousness of man can cause the wave function to collapse and can even affect reality itself. The separation between individuals, but also between material objects, is an illusion that prevents the perception of deep reality, the awareness of the whole. As a result, time and space, as a, res- as a result, time and space, but also the difference between, between past, present, and future, conceal each other out and become coexistent, a teaching we can find in the Hindu religious texts. Of course, one might wonder why they are so accurate. This is an important question that requires an equally exhaustive answer, which could come from ongoing multiple disciplinary research. Fascinating. Now, it, it, it ties into a couple other things that I want to look into real quick. You know, this idea of the nature of reality and the idea of, the re- of reality being alive. And this article was written May 7th, 2021 by Annie Katrin. Shakespeare's Ghost Live. What secret messages do the spirits reveal about the nature of reality? And, you know, this is something that I find really interesting about what they were saying near the end. You know, 
you know, there is, I'm going to do a, a live stream on it, but there was a, a, a recording that a man did that he actually interviewed uh, the voices from a schizophrenic. And the voice talked about how there is an entire reality that they inhabit, that these voices live in. And it reminded me of a comic book series that I have called Colder, which it literally deals with a uh, psychotic individual who can tap into and tra traverse the, the reality of the insane. Uh, and I, the only reason why I'm bringing this up, because, you know, we're, we're, when we're talking about the consciousness of the universe being alive and how we as individuals interact with such a consciousness and then the entities and the energies that I guess you could say walk between these worlds, between our reality, um, and I, you know, I've never heard of Shakespeare's Ghosts uh, live this this play, but it just adds to the further idea, you know, of, you know, I don't know if of any uh, paranormal investigators have ever asked a ghost, you know, you know, it's question, you know, questions on the merit of reality and uh, what plane of existence, you know, it lives on, but. It's just something to think about. And I've, I found this really interesting and I wanted to bring this up. When one of us began studying uh, psychology, he was told that if, if the aim was to understand human relationships, it's better, to, it's better served by studying literature, especially Shakespeare. Since then, at least, uh, since then, at least as concerns clinical psychology, the subject has moved on to become an evidence-based humanistic alternative to psychiatry's rather than mindless medical model. Yet some of Shakespeare's insights do remain unrecognized. This, I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> Despite all the innumerable uh, uh, treatises on Shakespeare, there is a near absence of any discussion of what can be inferred from his works concerning his view on the paranormal. And, you know, I, it's to me, it's like, well, you know, I, I don't think there's much of a difference when it comes to paranormal and 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 quantum entanglements and, and quantum energy. I think there might be a little bit, a little hand in hand there. Hark. Consciousness and entanglement. Most of the most uh, most of us know the quotation from Shakespeare's. There are more things in heaven and earth. Uh, Harturio than are dreamt in our philosophy, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5. But very few scientists have actually taken this on board. So let's use this axiom to look at a fascinating area, consciousness. Now, I think it's interesting about that because you can, you know, I don't know if Shakespeare studied the Vedas or anything like that. I don't know. Um... But it's 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 obvious that this knowledge, and it, and it goes in with you know synchronicity, um, you know. This knowledge is is out there in the ether, in the consciousness, and whether you believe in the muses or not, I do. Um, they're obviously a tie with the muses and and quantum entanglement and and, and quantum physics, 
because this same idea that we're discussing right now is very similar to what the Vedas were already discussing. Okay. While there are um, while there exists no accredited work integrating modern physics and psychology, there is now at least a quantum biology relating to biological molecules that show a dynamic form of entanglement that there is a resonance with each others with each other across time and space that is not explicable by casual laws. If entanglement is found to have perceivable role in nature, then given these forms of resonance occur in one brain, then they may well occur between separate brains. Suddenly, the paranormal becomes normal science. And I think that's interesting because then like I was saying, I don't think there, there's no indistinguishable between the paranormal and, and quantum physics, as I was saying earlier. It's just another reality. It's just another equation to solve and, and to communicate. Indeed, should the author and, and physician Larry Dowsey be right, then these developments are not just academic. They would have implications that will revolutionize modern medicine. Shakespeare's Knowing Ghost. What does Shakespeare, who works contain 14 ghosts, have to say on the topic? And here we have a picture of Macbeth seeing the ghost of Banquo. Shout out to Banquo. He's done dirty. In order to elevate Shakespeare's writings, it is, of course, necessary to take into account. Real quick, before we go, you have ghosts and then you have the three witches. You have magic. You have the three witches tapping into metaphysical capabilities. Just saying, just saying. All right, back to it. In order to elevate Shakespeare's writings, it is, of course, necessary to take into account the zeitgeist where a deviant idea could easily lead to the dungeon, if not decapitation. The Protestant Elizabeth period, with its renaissance, may well have offered greater freedom of expression for Shakespeare than the subsequent reign of James I. Although James was a Protestant, he also um, he uh, he was also James V of Scotland, where uh, Calvinism and Catholicism were prevailing. Moreover, James took a very personal interest in witchcraft, because spells were to have inferred with his marriage arrangements, causing heavy storms, so that his fiancee's ship. Copenhagen ended up at the Oslor rather than Leith. Wait a minute. Where did, where? This James guy, he got in trouble for some other things involving witchcraft. Ah, oh, man, I wish I could remember what it was. But I remember reading something about him and some other stuff that he was doing with witchcraft. Yeah, I think, yeah, he wanted to go a different route, but the church forced his hand. Um, Something like that. The North Berwick witches were accused and burned for a conspiracy involving the devil. James attended one of the trials, dismissing at first the involvement of the devil until one of the witches convinced him of her powers, unwittingly sealing her fate by telling him the precise words his fiance had whispered into his ear. The witches in Macbeth closely resemble the depictions found in the records of the North Berwick witch trials. And there we have it, you know, you know. Tapping into the consciousness of the of the world of, of people, you know, 
was she necessarily a witch or was she someone who was capable of tapping into into the consciousness of the universe? Here we have a picture of suspected witches kneeling before King James. For Catholics and Calvinist sympathizers, there is one exception to seeing ghosts as agents of the devil. This was if God had a purpose in allowing the ghosts a leave of absence from purgatory. Protestants added, added one further, one more modern alternative, delusions of distraught minds. Hamlet was written very shortly before the ascendancy of James to the throne, and the ghosts appear only because he who has a leave of absence from purgatory, and the delusion aspect plays a major role in the play. Evil Spirits The play Julius Caesar and Richard III are from the Elizabeth, Elizabethan period. In Julius Caesar, scene, uh, in scene three, or I forgot, what was that, act four or five? I'm terrible with Roman numbers, so I apologize. Uh, Brutus confronts the ghost demanding, speak to me what thou art. And the answer is the evil spirit Brutus, which is practically profound here lies in the answer, the evil spirit. This saying that while it is Brutus' own consciousness that has produced the ghost, the entity has an ind independence of Brutus. The entity then foretells how they will meet again at Philippa, which is where Brutus will die. And there you have, you know, the, 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 the difference between, you know, the Brahmin and human, the connections. You know, it, even in, in this story, it's you're literally looking at, you know, Vedic and Quantic teachings. <laughs> The independence of the spirits reoccurs in Richard III. Before the Battle of uh, Bosworth Field, when a succession of ghosts simultaneously appear, the dreams of both Richard and his adversary, Richmond. The ghosts torment Richmond but encourage Richmond in the fight by foretelling that he will become king and beget future kings. And here we have a picture of David Garrett. <laughs> As Richard III by William Hogroff, 1745. This underlining idea is close that thought forms, dynamic forms of thinking, which can take on their own identity. Around Shakespeare's time, the Flemish physician Jan Baptiste van Helmert, 1579 to 1644, was propositioning that real spirits are created by the imagination. The idea is not a is not a culturally bound one. It occurs, for instance, in the Tibetan Buddhism as tulpas, a thought form or being created by the collective thoughts of separate individuals, which are said to be easy to create but can become autonomous and empowered. Puck, one of the central characters in Midsummer's Night's Dream, seems to derive from the Irish goblin Fuka, the Welsh uh, Pwaka, and the German goblin Puk, and the Scandinavian Puk. I'm not sure. I think I'm just don't don't quote me on the pronunciation. And uh, here we have Puck or Robin Goodfellow from William Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream, 1810-1820, is one of Henry Fulcher's most sinister depictions of the character. Perhaps the most well-known example in modern Western culture of thought forms is the imaginary rabbit in the film Harvey. Harvey is a six-foot-four uh, white rabbit, Puka, from a Celtic folklore who is an imaginary friend of an, of an eccentric. At first, Harvey is only 
is only seen by by the eccentric, but soon develops his own life and others begin to see him. The tulpa can even appear as a feature of hypnosis. The Harvard-educated uh, psychologist George Estabrooks claimed to be able to produce through group hallucinations an imaginary polar bear on a hospital ward, who, like Harvey, developed its own existence and its own willpower. How much of our consciousness fuels and creates our reality? Something to think about. Here we have a picture from the film Harvey of Harvey and his white rabbit. Ghosts, poltergeists, and strange disturbances. A further feature of our book, Shakespeare's Ghost Live, from Shakespeare's Ghost to Psychical Research, Psychical Research, was to re reclaim some of the relatively unknown accounts in rare books of spontaneous cases of ghosts and poltergeists from the Shakespearean period onwards and compare them to modern cases. An example of a remarkable older poltergeist case took place in the 1600s in Rarick, Scotland. Fourteen witnesses tell of seeing apparitions and poltergeist phenomenon, stone throwing, wraps fire setting, movement of furniture, and the disturbance of animals. The case is similar to the modern Enfield case in that some of the phenomenon were dangerous, if not potentially lethal. So, way, so whatever lay behind such cases of uh, perpetrators possess extraordinary throwing skills in order to not cause serious bodily harm. That makes me think of Skywalker Ranch. How much of Skywalker Ranch is just a pocket, um, a tear in our pocket into another reality that influences ours and allows inconceivable entities and creatures and what have you enter our realm and how much of that is being generated by our consciousness our imagination you know is it that you know they enter our world into our they enter our world into perceptions of what we would perceive them to be just something to think about how do we explain such cases we all know from multitasking that our sense of self is far from uh, unitary if part of the self is activated by destructive motives which are seen as alien to the reigning self, then during periods of religious repression and gross denial of human needs and integrity, all hell can break loose. Looking at you, DARPA. Looking at you, Harpa. Looking at you at the hydrogen collide machine. There are more to this. With the help of local history societies, we found cases where the ghost gave explicitly correct details of a murder. The apparition of the murdered Ann Walker in 1630 from Lumley County, Durham, appeared to an owner of a mill not far from where it correctly told the body and clothes could be found. It claimed Anna had become pregnant and murdered by a named man, who then, be, who then because of this, was brought to trial and executed. Uh, and here we have the remains of the mill of, at Lumley. I bet those accounts show recurrent features. Are they were mere de deception and delusion? If the considerable laboratory-based evidence for existence, exasperatory perception is taken seriously, then there could be implications of a viable theory of what consciousness is. To sleep, to dream. Shakespeare's well-known quotation from Hamlet is fitting. To die, to sleep, to sleep, 
purchase to dream. I, there's the rub, for in that sleep a death what dreams may come. Neuroscientist and Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, Nobel Prize winner, winner, uh, winner, Arvid Carlson speculated recently about what happens when you die. We perhaps experience something which does not have any aspect of time, a state where the brain ceases to function and which is completely freed from the experience of time. And what is this? It is a sense of eternity. Contemporary physicists is still very divided as to the ultimate nature of reality, but some leading physicists such as Max uh, Tegmark regard consciousness as an important as important to their theories. It is generally acknowledged that the most influential psychologist was not a psycho psychoanalytic or a cognitive uh, psychologist, but the philosopher William James. It was James who, through his studies of altered states of consciousness and mediumship, arrived at the conclusion that the universe is a pluralistic and consciousness as transcendental. The above Shakespeare, uh, more things in heaven and earth, quotation, has a lasting relevance. Shakespeare is the most cited person through recent history, and yet no one pays attention to his views on psychic phenomenon. Our mission is to tame that. So, you know, how much of this is really, you know, the reason why I want to bring it up is like, it really coincides with this idea of, of this quantum realm of entanglement, of Brappen. I mean, we are see, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this stuff from Shakespeare's play. We're seeing, in my opinion, stuff that closely resembles to what the Vedas is teaching, you know, and where did he get that knowledge from? Like I was saying earlier, is this knowledge that is just anyone can tap into it? It's just that you have to be of a certain mindset, of a certain caliber. I don't know. But I want to continue because I got some more that connects to this. This was updated uh, June 27, 2017 by Chris Morgan. Do your eyes fool you? Ancient vision and a new reality. How to see and draw like the ancients. From the beginning of time, those among us, now called artists, now called artists have tried to capture in two dimensions what they saw in re of the real, three-dimensional world in which they lived. Almost from the very beginning. A space, the immaterialistic stuff that envelops us, became the object of their fascination. How could they represent it? The creativity of the early Homo sapiens allowed them for the first time to paint animals on irregular walls using, for example, a depression to represent the prominent belly of a bison. The overlapping images of animals on a cavern wall allowed them to reproduce the top-down vision, which a hunter might have seen from the top of a promontory. A promontory. Oh God, I'm butchering that one. Oof. As they watched the plane below them, so I have been battling all sorts of words today. I apologize. Right, this is a photo from the Sahara. Uh, shepherds and hunters. 
Homo sapien was not only a sculpture, but also was also able to sketch on a flat surface. For this, they recreated special tools, anticipating the efforts needed to execute such designs. Now, if you watch my video on the Denisovans, you know that the Denisovans, you know, prior to these Homo sapiens, were already creating um, jewelry. And I mean, beautiful jewelry. So we have more pictures from the Sahara. Uh, so our ancestors manipulated an abstract concept such as space with great skill. Our view of the way they might have lived is in part shaped by the fact that they carried this baggage of such abstract and relational concepts. It seems that this natural skill was several times lost to humanity. If, for example, we move forward to the timeline of the to the first mother cities of Mesopotamia around 5,000 years ago, one finds that they made no effort at all to represent physical space, at least not what we have found thus far. For this, we have to wait until the Hellenistic period when documented works began to appear in a Mediterranean basin and also further east in China. It must be noted that social organizations played a fundamental role in the aspirations of artists. The complexity of life developed together with appropriate techniques for the representation of space. In short, we can distinguish three main types of perspective. The curvilinear, the collinear, the rectilinear, and the real. These three techniques coexisted over time. Astronomy and trigonometry. The, the curvilinear perspective. This technique consists in using curves emanating from a singular vanishing point. We first notice the Greeks use curves to construct temples whose columns have outward, outward towards their midpoint or zenith and are narrower or concave near ground level. We see this principle at work in some existing monuments such as Tron's column built in Rome AD 107 that followed hidden rules of trigonometry. And here we have a picture of the column. These principles of trigonometry were collected in AD 150 by Panopoli of Alexandria in the form of the table of circular arcs, originally as used by astronomers. And here we have the column of Tahar. An observer sees the bottom of the top of the fries under the same angle. During the Renaissance, artists did not concern themselves with the principles of trigonometry. It was really not part of their training. I wonder why. Thus, they were hampered by the fact that they could not define the fugitive curves which they observed when they viewed a landscape through a window. Artistic masters such as Bruin Ashashti and Alberti opted instead for an approximation known as the reticular perspective, limiting their works to a narrow observational window. And here is a 15th century illustration from the old French translation of William of Ty's History de Otomir. However, many famous painters from Fauquet, 1420 to four, uh, I think 1481, to Matisse, 1869-1954, intuitively used magnifying glass effect or a curvilinear perspective without dwelling too much on any underlining theory. And here we have The Young Sailor One Oil Canvas by uh, Henry Matisse, 1901. 
by royal edict, the reptilian, the reptil, the rectilinear perspective. Alberti, by representing here in the same drawing, in a in a view facing a grid on the left and profile view on the right, gives a method of constructing of the enlargement of squares when they are closer to the observer. The principle consists in saying that in the landscape, everything converges to infinite towards a vanishing point from which start receding starlight lines. The lines of equal magnification of the objects are also straight. This technique had the advantage of simplicity. It also avoided the magnifying glass effect that was too close to the raw reality. The gentleness architect Alberti 1404 to 1472 elaborated a method showing the steps in the mapping of space. The French architect De Surges, 1593 to 1693, developed the theorem further, showing it by a construction of the shadows cast by the sun on the floor. This is the classical system we know and which prevailed in European academics from the 18th to the middle of the 19th centuries. Now imagine if they implemented uh, trigonometry and calculus into this would have been a game changer. The types of drawings these artists would have been able to create. But it's remarkable that this system was not one willingly chosen by the artists themselves. It had to be imposed by a royal edict of the French king. Uh, French king Louis, I don't know, the 18th, whatever, who knows, I'm sorry. He did this in order to put an end to the tiresome Plumetics between the partisans of the curvilinear perspective, in particular, Canon Bolse, and those rectilinear perspectives, such as Lebrun, director of the Royal Academy. Now we're getting into some, some political art battles. Love it. And here we have uh, Louis, the King of France in 1661. On their side, Chinese artists represented space with parallel lines which does not really correspond to our psychological perception. In the picture below, the table appears as if they have shifted out of line. The overall effect is quite pleasing, if not exactly what the artist intended. Eerie, 1700 Japan, tea by the seaside. And, now, and, and you know, what's interesting about this picture, and it's, it's a Far East rectilinear parallel perspective, this one seems more interactive. You know, when you look at this Japanese version as composed to this European version up here, there's so much going on. It's chaotic. It's very, it's really constricted to just this plane. And we, they're building something, but it's so overwhelmingly chaotic. There's so much kind of going on. But when this one, when you look at a Japanese version of East uh rectilinear parallel perspective it's more open you feel like you can actually kind of step into the picture uh i just think it's fascinating the the the, the comparison and and the implication of, of the uh hindu influence on art in terms of the mathematical views in art and the implications i think it's this is fascinating lessons from our eyes the real perspective. The first systemic attempt to define the vanquishing lines and steps of magnification was that the Bayer and Flocon 
who in the 1930s took note of the fact that our human perception is constructed in a spherical space of the physical eyeball. And here is a curlinear uh, spherical perspective by Bayer and Fulkin in the 1930. The bottle is behind the sketcher. At the same time, in 1947, M.C. Iser, in his lithograph above and below, represented a patio as a cylindrical perception of space. According to his friend Bruno Erst, he used a sin sinusoidal arcs, repeating mathematical curves such as a sine wave, but without being aware of it. Oh, and there we have in that photo. Here is MC Usher up and down and above and below. And there again, we have more, you know, Veda teachings, Gnostic teachings. It's, you know, art and religion literally is one and the same. And, and art, religion, and, and science, it's, it's one of the same. In 1928, David Hockney photographed the Grand Canyon of Colorado with 200 shots. He did this because he maintained that we are surrounded by a cylindrical space because of the presence of our two eyes. And here is David Hockney's photographs of the Grand Canyon all put together. So actually, wow, it's, whoa, that is trippy. Oh, that is trippy. Wow. The present author, writing in 2002, Drawing in Real Perspective, demonstrates that in cylindrical space, the, re the receding lines are trigonomic, trigonomic, trigonometric arcs, and the curves of constant magnification are ellipsoids. When they find again the principles of construction of the Greek temples on the column of Trajan, what appears when Leonardo da Vinci transferred a landscape through a window panel and the magnifying effect used intuitively by Matassi. Perspective at home. The application of this technique is actually surprisingly easy to do. All that is required is for the artist to look again with renewed attention at all the angles and curves. The neuroscience has shown us that our body is made for this task. The eye sees curves, the brain captures them. Even the movement of the joints in our arms works on these principles. When the angle meets a wall, we draw a trigonometric, i.e. curved line amongst, almost without thinking. With a little retaining, these natural curves are used to make images on paper a real perspective. After a while, it becomes considerably faster to work this way, the risk of making an error virtually non-existent. And here we have a photo of a constrained magnification of curves. And here we have another photo of magnification of curves. And this was a three-minute drawing with practice by Xavier Bolot. The newly rediscovered techniques of real perspective based as they are on the natural techniques determined by our physiological perception in part returns to us in mind set and wondrous skill of prehistoric ancestors. And, you know, that really, you know, ties in well with, you know, what I was talking about, you know, the, you know, talking about prehistoric ancestors, how they would create this, these incredible and these beautiful works of uh, jewelry. Uh, uh, it's pretty wild. Okay, I just got a wild comment in Rumble. Very, very interesting comment. 
left in Rumble. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, but let's keep let's keep on going because I I got two more articles to connect to all of this, and then we'll wrap it up. But you know, I think what was also interesting about that is, you know, the like I was saying earlier, how this information is in the consciousness, it's in the life stream of our conscious, and people are tapping into it, knowingly and unknowing, that this knowledge is has already been common, has already been known. It's really interesting. Now, this article is written in 2018, uh, May 27th, by Benamali uh, Mataji, Maya, science, only acknowledges now what ancient sages knew about reality 5,000 years ago. Maya is a, world, oh, is a word which is very familiar to Western world, world, but very few know what it actually means. It is a word which is used by the rishis, sages of ancient India to describe the nature of this universe and changing forms. The Rishis have always been telling us that matter is not as real or as solid as we think. It is only an illusion projected by our senses. They call it Maya, or the magical creative power of the Brahman. Matter is energy in motion. With the dawn of the 20th century, we find that physics studied to support this view. With one swiggly of his pen, Einstein exploded the... the exploded the deterministic mechanical view of matter e equals mc square matter is energy in motion this created a revolution in the mind of western scientists the theory of relativity showed us that we can only know the rel relations between objects and quantum theory declared that we can only see probabilities what we think of as solid matter is an illusion created by our eyes in fact it is the maya which is the Rishis talked about, which what which the Rishis talked about. Matter is actually made up of particles and waves that merely indicate the different types of knowledge that can be derived from that object. Therefore, modern physicists deals with the possibilities of probabilities and not with certainties. Scientists finally realize that our senses do not give us a true picture of reality. This is exactly what the Rishis of ancient India have been telling us more than 5,000 years ago. Now, even then, they were already arguing and, you know, and summoning up and the, the argument of life and, and reality long before we were able even to conceptualize that idea. The, 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 the science has already been settled thousands of years ago. <laughs> Observation and solid state. Maya is that state when the mind confuses the myriad forms of the world and takes them for a real for, for real without apprehending the underlying unity that binds them together. What gives form and purpose to the drama we enjoy on the TV is the firm, unchanging pure white screen beneath. The screen itself has no qualities. It is unmoving and unchanging, but without this solid support, the play of light and the shade which we are watching would have no form and no meaning. Similarly, the drama of our life and the drama of the world without taking place in front of our eyes would have no meaning without the solid stage 
of the steady, unchanging state of the pure consciousness of the Brahman on which it is being enacted. The quantum world, which is a strange, unbelievably dance of particles, solidifies into a semblance of concrete reality when an observation is made by someone. In the absence of an observer, the atomic world is only a possibility. The particles materialize only when we look at them. And here is a picture of an image of surface reconstruction of a clean gold surface as visualized using scanning, tunneling, microscopy. The individual atoms composing the material are visible. Surface reconstruction causes the surface atoms to deviate from the bulk crystal structure and arrange columns several atoms wide with a regular space pits between them. That's gold. <laughs> so, so wild. Another strange fact is that when scientists looked at the location of a particle, they were able to find it at a particular place. But when they could not gauge its speed, when they wanted to gauge its speed, the, part the particle turned into a wave and they could see it in motion. However, the scientists could not fix both its location and speed at the same time. Both depended on the observer. We cannot observe a thing without influencing it. Infinite regression. It takes us back to the truth, which had been declared by the, the Rishis, that each of us is really creating our own world. Modern science has corroborated the statements of the Rishis that this is actually a shadow world which can be called real only when the consciousness of the observer comes into play. Normally, quantum particles act as a haphazard fashion of chaos and disorder, but when individual consciousness is focused on them, they lose their individuality and begin to act as a single unit. The coherence extends into the world. Thus, human consciousness represents the greatest form of order known in nature and can help to shape and create order in the world. In meditation, and especially in the state of samadhi, superconscious state, the brain touches the zero-point field of quantum physics, which is known as citta in Sanskrit, in which, the state, in which state the brain has perfect coherence. Here we have a statue of Shiva in Comfort Shiv Temple, Bangalore. The vital thing is the perception of the individual. Classical theory asserted that the observer is one who stands safely behind the glass wall and watches what goes on without participating in anything since it was thought that the observer's view would interfere and mess up the experiment. This is impossible according to quantum physics because we are, we are observing and we are in the world at the exact same time. Creating our own worlds. The modern physicist corroborates the claim of the Rishis that the world exists only because we who are the observers are actively participating in it. The world is a creation of the human mind. Each of us creates our own world. These worlds are used both by the Vendata and the quantum physicists. The Vendanta says that the universe is an illusion created by the participators in this drama taking place in the state of the universe. The tall texts speak of the exact same thing.
Vendada says that the universe is an illusion created by the, the participators in this drama taking place in the stage of the universe. The Taltics call it the dream of the planet. The zero point state of matter is having a sea of inexhaustible energy, which is called cheetah in Hindu terminology. This is recording the medium of everything in the universe through which everything can communicate with each other. Basically, we are all connected with every single thing in the universe, right from the stars to the earthworms. In fact, we resonate with the universe. We all give off a frequency. Why do you think the whole, the whole term, don't kill my vibe, came from? Unchangeable in the world. The question now comes up, to, comes up as to how the supreme, unchangeable being of the Brahmin turned into the changing world. Vendata explains this unique phenomenon by postulating Maya as the cause of superimposition. Maya has two powers, one to veil and the other to project. It veils the nature of Brahman and projects polarities on the scene of the non-dual. We can understand this only through examples. Light exists, darkness does not. The latter is only the absence of the former. Although darkness does not exist in reality, it has empirical existence. Similarly, similarly the world also has empirical reality. According to the theory of relativity, continuous reactivity is the very essence of matter. Hence, in Hinduism, Maya is described as a state of becoming, whereas Brahm is the state of being. The, uh, the, uh, the, Puranians descri the Purans describe the relationship in a very poetic way. Shiva in his essence to the absolute and is known as Bhava or being, whereas the consort Bravati is the essence of Maya is known as the bravani or becoming. There can be no change without expectature of energy. The Sanskrit word of energy is shakti. This also refers to maya, as we have seen. Hinduism, with its genius for personification, says that shakti is a feminine principle of Brahman, and so coexistence with it. It is a principle of action through which the inert Brahman appears to project itself into the, the multifarious forms of the world. Each god of the Trinity has its own Shakti, Shiva and Pravati, Lakshmi and Narayame, Brahma and Sarawati. Thus, we find that scientific facts are nearly interwoven into the stories of the Puranan, of the Puranans. Here we have a photo of the marriage of Shiva and Parvati, the wedding of the charming one. Maya as one. Maya is thus the enchantress of, who has cast a spell on us and made us believe in the solid reality of the universe of forms. She has made us believe in the reality of the forms and forgot that formless that, that the formless that is upholding the forms. The only way to break free from the spell of enchantress of the Enchantress is to realize that all the forms we see are aspects of one reality. 
just as all the rays of light emanate just from one sun. This is known as muksha or liberation and is a goal of Hinduism. Liberation is when the individual experiences that he or she is nothing but that Brahman. That is the very essence of Hinduism. This experience is possible only because the essence of that pure consciousness is embedded in the very core of the human being. The, the, Upashads, the Upanishads have already told us that the Atman, individual soul, equals the Brahman or the cosmic soul. The true nature of that consciousness is revealed to us only when Maya is removed from the mind through perception. Many different types of yogas are given in Hinduism in order to realize this all-important fact. They all attempt to unite the many with one. Thus, all yoga is an attempt by the human mind to free itself from the clutches of Maya and experience the liberating unity of Brahm. Overcoming Maya. The sage um, Aruchalalam, known as the Raman Marahashi, advocated the method as self-inquiry in order to remove the veil of Maya. Who am I? Is the question that he asked his disciples to use. By negating all of those parts of ourselves that are transitionary or superficial, we will come to the realization that we are nothing other than that supreme consciousness of Brahman. This is the final liberation form of all the fears that haunt the mind of the human being. If this knowledge is made a part of our everyday life, all our basic hang-ups like the fear of death, extreme attachment to people, places, and objects can be banished forever. Our inquiry into the true nature of ourselves will make us realize that the Supreme Self is present in all beings in, in, irrespective of any perceived differences. Meditation and yoga can only give us occasional glimpses of that Supreme Self. But the abiding knowledge and realization that our existence is not separate from the universal existence can at one stroke remove all mental agonies. This can only be achieved through sustained self-inquiry. This is the only way by which we can achieve a victory over the complementary illusionary, illusioner, yet totally powerful state known as Maya. Am Tat Sat. Now, if you remember what we talked about in number that uh, it was A, B, and C, talked about the importance of meditation. Now, you're seeing how all of this is coinciding with quantum physics and how in many ways, you know, quantum physics, quantum entanglement, it's all part of our spiritual entanglement. It's all part of, you know, our spiritual and, and hero's journey, as I like to put it. Uh, much love to everyone who's in the live stream. Shout out to Rumble. Hit that like button. I appreciate we got a new subscriber on Rumble. Thank you very much. Shout out to YouTube as well. Appreciate you guys. If anyone is watching over at Twitch, shout out to you as well. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing this here for you guys in real time. How, you know, the, the more you try to disconnect yourself from the spiritual, the less you're be you're you're becoming human. And it's right there in front of us. What we're what we're learning and what we're learning here with the Hindu texts and quantum physics is that it's it's way more than what we thought. It's way more than just math. It's life. It's being. 
It's truth. All right, this was written and updated January 30th, 2013 by April Holloway. The Hindu sacred texts about human origins. Third in the list of major religions with more than 870 million followers is Hinduism. Hinduism goes back to 500 BCE, is a compilation of many diverse traditions in contrast to Christianity and Muslim traditions both of which emerged from a single founder, making it the oldest practiced religion closely related to that of Jainism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. The religion gained body of texts are referred to as the Veda, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavadita. There are many different Hindu creation stories. References to a first world or universe won't be found. Also, Though the belief in one supreme god is common, Hindu texts consider all deities to be extensions of this god. Lord Brahm is the creator of the universe and the first in the triumphant. The other two gods compromising the triumphant are Vishnu, who sustains the creation, Shiva, the destroyer of the evil. These three gods form the supreme one, who is behind all creation and destruction mind, body, and soul. And these gods created and destroyed the universes continuously. The length of time which a process takes is uncountable. However, one day for Brahm is considered four billion years for us. Also, according to the Hindu text, whenever Brahm sleeps, the world is destroyed, and every morning when he wakes, it is created again. Brahm creates human beings and all life. All different species come out from different parts of Brahm's body. He created man as the first of the animals and the strongest. He created him from his soul. One of the stories mentions that Brahm splits himself into two to create male and female. In other texts, the Prabhajapti, a group of deities, the sons of Brahm, are said to be creating all living beings, both gods and mortal creatures. Sounds very similar to the Anunnaki. The concept of God in Hinduism is exceptionally complex and varies according to different philosophies and traditions. Generally, gods in Hinduism appear more like supreme personal beings. Devas, a word for deity, can easily be conveyed as supernatural beings, and according to Hindu texts, there are 33 in the celestial world. 33. Masons. However, an interesting concept mentioned by one of the creation hymns, Nasadiya Sutka, is, the, is that the creation of the universe came first and gods afterwards. Still, since Hindu texts do not state one clear origin of everything, the creation tradition in Hinduism is a little bit obscure. Fascinating. 
And you know what I what I find really interesting about this and is how you know the the you know it says that the universe was created first and then the gods were second. You know, and and you know it's like okay, it, and it kind of coincides with what what I feel is that you know the universe in and of itself is a being, it is a entity, it is alive, and from such creation comes what what follows would be. Uh, the gods and humanity and what else, whatever else. Bless you. That's uh, my old man, Pobbs. He's, he's having a, a snoozing fit at the moment. But, you know, what was so fascinating and, and wonderful about this, in my opinion, was just the realization that, you know, some of my own beliefs and thoughts are have just kind of been confirmed and have been, um, you could say, been have given more of a strengthening in its in my foundations of my beliefs. And I hope for anyone else out there who have taken the time to to listen and have been enjoying thus far, perhaps you yourself have learned a little bit about your own uh, belief system and maybe you found something that challenged your foundations of your belief system. Uh, for me, a lot of things were just uh, reaffirmed and uh, kind of revitalized a bit. And I think for all of us, you know, you, you I, I hope that after this, you you take some time and you do some deep dives into your own belief systems and into many of the information, into much of the information that we have just gone over. Uh, yes, a lot of it was definitely dense, but it was beautiful and it was creative and it was interesting. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think for any of us out there, you know, you don't have to be a mathematician to appreciate the beauties and, and wonders of quantum physics and quantum and mechanics and entanglement. You just have to have a love for life <laughs> and all the wonders. And there you will be amidst, you know, the quantum entanglements that the mathematicians and the scientists dabble with each and every day. But I, I want to just say I, I really appreciate everyone who stuck by me through this uh, long stream. Like I said, you know, we were going to be doing a deep dive. And when we do a deep dive, we, we do a deep dive. And we every now and then we'll come back up for air, but we got to keep going further and further. So I really appreciate everyone that stopped by. Uh, before we wrap up, please make sure you hit that like button. And uh, make sure you subscribe. Uh, and make sure you share the, share this stream. Uh, you know, love to uh, Rumble and everyone who is watching our Rumble. Really appreciate you guys stopping by and taking time to listen. I, I hope you guys have a wonderful start to your week. Shout out to everyone on YouTube. I hope you have a wonderful start to your week. And, you know, take some time and, and reflect on what it means to be human and, and what it means to have a conscious experience. And you don't have to go too deep as we've done today, but, you know, take a walk through the woods Sit in silence, take a moment, be present, and reflect. And you just might be surprised what you uncover. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lounge Ronin. All things, everything. And if you made it this far and you're new to the channel, please make sure to hit that like button and subscribe, and ring that notification bell. And until next time, stay positive, stay focused, stay true.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lounge Ronin. To learn more about myself and how you can support Lounge Ronin, head over to my Patreon page at Ronin Art and Music. If you're interested in reaching out, follow me on my social media on Twitter, Ronin Art and Music, or at me at Kios Ronin, K-O-I-O-S-R-O-N-I-N. On Instagram, follow me at Ronin Art underscore music. And if you prefer, hit me up at my email at roninartandmusic09 at gmail.com. And if you're listening to this on your preferred streaming service, please make sure to subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, leave a comment and a review, and slap that notification bell. On Apple Podcasts, please make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review as this will help me and the podcast grow. Stay positive, stay focused, stay true, and much love. 